If Murray had supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> America's Blah, blah, blah. Sending out good vibes. They took my sister, this is the FBI, who was, I believe, eight at the time, and forced her to get on a microphone, a megaphone, and say, we're going to kill your father, and I had my sister on a megaphone, daddy, come out, they're going to kill you. Okay, guys, welcome back to Grow America Show. Our big DB Cooper app, app is finally here. We're finally able to release it. Dan had his video come out. I hear it's quite damning. I did briefly go through the comments, and it seems like most people seem to be on board, at least on the ones i seen. Um, there's like a 750 comments on it already. There's probably some argument in there, but this is it. It came out. I mean, the audio is, is great. I mean, there's there's a couple snafus in it that I couldn't get out, but for the most part, I'm pretty happy with how it turned out, considering it was in Rick's living room. But uh, it's a great chat. One for the yeah, books. Yeah, what a great guy, too, eh? Rick, Rick McCoy. Rick. I was talking uh, to Rick today. One for the books. Were you? Yeah. He, I mean, what a heartfelt, um, deep chat about all this stuff from, from like his dad's, you know, history in the war, being a war hero, all the way through to the current times. I mean, it captures everything. And of course, Brandon Powell, our buddy, is there to help us through this because he's been a, you know, a fan of this for, for many years because his birthday falls on, on the day. And he's I mean, friends and, with Rick. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And he's friends with Rick. And, and you know, Dan, Dan, uh, Dan said, I mean, I was like, so have you got any feedback yet? And I mean, the whole DB Cooper community just ignores this whole section of the, this whole sort of part of it, which is fascinating to me. And, and it's interesting and good actually. So, I mean, Dan, as far as Dan's concerned, the case is closed. I mean, his video is pretty damning to the FBI. I mean, he's got the FBI on tape talking about this. He's got um, Richard Floyd McCoy's parachute instructor talking about it, showing him the logbooks. I mean, it's great. He goes over the parachute evidence. So if anybody wants to see like, you know, the FBI and the new evidence side of this in video, check out the link in the show notes to Dan Grider's um, Probable Cause YouTube channel. His his videos there in the link. But this episode, audio only with Rick and Brandon, is a completely different story. I mean, this is the the human sort of part of the story, the human interest part of the story. We talk about, you know, everything, the prison breaks, uh, what it was like growing up, you know, knowing that your dad was D.B. Cooper, but not really being able to say anything. Um, the copycat hijacking, the, the the similarities there. I mean, we get into everything in detail in this episode. For sure. And I will clarify, I was talking to um, Rick on Instagram, not like talking, talking. Yeah, right, right. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, I would say Dan's videos are great. And if you like have any doubt in whether or not uh, this is the real McCoy, I would say just go watch those videos, part one and part two. Press pause, go watch those. And then, you know, welcome back. Now you know that that's D.B. Cooper and you can listen to his kid talk. And, you know, there's some crying and it is uh, a crazy interview. It's really one for the books. And we're the first one of its kind in the world. No one else has interviewed Rick yet. So this is it. 
Yeah, totally. So we, we should appreciate. Yeah, we appreciate, appreciate them both. Yeah, and Rick putting us up, and of course Brandon Powell, one of my best friends. I love that motherfucker. And Rick, you know, he's great. He's invited us to stay at his house anytime we're out that way again. And I'm sure our paths will cross again. Actually, the rumor is he might show up in California. So that'd be awesome. The Sky Pirate Ranch. Yeah, everywhere. that's right. This and is recorded at the Sky Pirate Ranch. That's right. And then when I talk about California, if uh, you want to come meet up with us all, contact at thecabin.com. We have our Shasta event coming up. You guys want to check that out. Uh, I'm pretty sure Rick will be there. Brad will be there for sure. All of us, of course, THC. Uh, we did want it. We kind of did a Egypt recap episode, and we forgot to give a shout out to all the fantastic people we met. So I'll start out by giving a shout out to the back of the bus. I mean, you guys know who oh. you are. Of course, Brian from uh, the Australians, Brian and Sir Andy and his wife. Oh, I wasn't going to start mentioning names. I mean, you, you weren't. Oh, we weren't working with that. Yeah, well, yeah. I'll give a shout out to Mike and Brian for sure because we smoked a lot of weed together at a lot of ancient sites. <laughs> I didn't want to start mentioning names because there's too many. There to is mention, too many. To we're going to forget. We're going to forget names. But it was people, awesome people from all over the world, like Australia, the UK, the Ukraine, uh, Israel, Denmark, America, wankers. Canada. What? There's some wankers. There's some wankers. I mean, it was what an amazing group, of course, as usual with the trips that we go on. I mean, but this one was special everybody was very you know knowledgeable and unique about different things and we had great conversations and yeah it was it was great great did, group did no agenda play our meetup no no agenda's been in uh two uh weeks of or two episodes of uh best of clips because adam had massive uh, mouth surgery and so he's all clamped up someone so hit him I, in the I mouth don't know how that's going to work but we did do like a no agenda meetup uh, basically at the pyramids or where were we after the pyramids there? We were Some just, restaurant uh, across yeah, the we were street. trying to find a place to all, all of us knights and dames to, to pull aside and do a quick no agenda meetup. That's a podcast that we all, a lot of us listen to. And that was pretty fun to, to talk about that. All right, guys, that is about it. We're going to keep it short and sweet since there's probably a bunch of people here that are just here for the DB Cooper thing. We won't, we won't lazy with our ramblings, but we do have 575 other episodes of this podcast you can check out in the back column. We have another podcast that's a little more controversial over at GrimericaOutlaw.ca. And most importantly, we are solely listener-supported. So if you like what you hear, head over to GrimAmerica.ca slash support today and uh, hit us up with a monthly one-time donation. Whatever you can do, we'd love you for it. Other than that, enjoy the world premiere interview with... Richard Floyd McCoy III.
Okay, I'm going to get right into it here. We are in person with D.B. Cooper's son, a.k.a. Dan Cooper, a.k.a. Richard Floyd McCoy. Rick McCoy is here, and our friend Brandon Powell, a friend of Rick's as well. And we're going to talk about Rick's story and the D.B. Cooper case and all kinds of stuff. So welcome, guys. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for coming up. Yeah, thanks for having us. Long time coming. Yeah, yeah. It's a full moon. It is. Yeah, Today? lots, lots of synchronicities. Full moon as we speak. I thought it was tomorrow. No, it's like right now, hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. Huh. Literally. It's Literally. Been confirmed by the app on my phone. Wow. <laughs> Done. Done. That's it. So we're going to just review the case for people that don't know what the D.B. Cooper thing is. And we got lots of personal stuff and stories to get into about Rick and his dad and what he's been through over the last couple decades. So, Brandon, you're you're familiar with this whole case. Why don't you just kick off, kick us off with like an overview for people that aren't aware of this infamous sort of mythological. It's become a mythological mystery in America, especially with this hijacking. Definitely a deep a deep seated mystery in our culture but uh on november 24th 1971 uh flight 305 which was a boeing 727 flew flying from portland to seattle um there was a hijacking there was a hijacking the uh the Demand was a $200,000 in ransom. So they wanted to, the the hijacker was willing to trade the passengers for $200,000. This whole thing has been very romanticized because of the character of who D.B. Cooper, uh, originally the alias was Dan Cooper, but the name through history has been changed. And for reasons that we can talk about was changed into um, D.B. Cooper. So now we all know him as D.B. Cooper. And he was uh, a character who was seemingly as smooth as they come. Barely had to speak, passing notes to the stewardess, uh, demanding uh, this ransom, demanding um, specific things that would be carried out uh, from the stewardess um, directly to the cabin and the pilots. And the the idea was that they would, uh, the hijacker instructed the flight crew to refuel the aircraft and begin the second flight uh, in Mexico City with a refueling stop in Reno, Nevada. So the the intention was to refuel there, but approximately 30 minutes after taking off from Seattle, the hijacker opened the aircraft's door and deployed the staircase. So that's a really interesting point was that the 727 had a staircase. An aft staircase, yeah. Right. The backside. That he wasn't aware how to operate, which is a point we can come back to later, which I think is really interesting in uh, the things that would follow, right? So he had to be instructed on how to operate the staircase. So that that really is an interesting clue that we'll talk about later. But And then somewhere there, he parachuted over the southwest region of Washington 
and disappeared and was never found again. Smooth sailing, right? Wow. Okay, let's let's back up a sec yeah. first. Yeah. He asked for four parachutes, right? Okay, so we're going. Yeah. So I just, just there's was, a couple details. Yeah. There's yeah. A couple I just things skipped in there, a lot uh, because they landed in Seattle. There was a um, a transfer of the passengers for the two hundred thousand dollars plus four parachutes, and <clears throat> basically. Um, you know, everything really went pretty smooth in that transition. Cooper seemingly knew a lot about planes, seemingly knew a lot about parachutes, and uh, adapted to the situation quickly. They took back off before he picked one of the parachutes specifically that we're going to obviously talk about um, all of these details. But the... The point, I guess, is to get into maybe what kind of parachute that was, right? And to talk about all the details of that parachute specifically. But the the point is, is he picked a parachute and, and he bailed. Now, what happened there is the biggest mystery, right? That's where it all comes down. That's where everything hinges on what happened after. Because this was a real person who made real choices. So there's so much speculation. It's so muddy. the The waters couldn't be muddier uh, with DB Cooper in a lot of ways, you know, because so many people think different things. But what we know, which I think is very important to what we're going to be talking about, is a man who did it right afterwards and pulled it off. And we know that it was pulled off, so that we know DB Cooper could have done it. And that's the most important thing to think about is that we know it can be done. It was done afterwards by a copycat. Um, but, you know, what we have is a, a story of a real person who did a crime. And then we know that he got away with this money, but yet money was found. Serial, uh, serial money was found later. And that ultimately uh, leads a lot to believe that the money wasn't uh, kept. And that's why people speculate that he didn't make it, right? But we're going to go into all of that now with a man who can fill in all the, all the missing pieces, really. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what makes this interview so historically important. Yeah. And let's just before we get into it with Rick, let's just bring a little bit more context to the this the the mythology of this over the last couple of decades because there's all kinds of investigators like f what forty fifty armchair investigators I don't know what the proper term is but there's a whole there's a whole like community of people investigating this that have been doing it for decades and they've and there's about thirty forty books out there and everybody's got their favorite suspect and there's and. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely, that's the thing. They've skipped over this because of some reasons that we'll get into later too. But there's a whole conference made out of it. There's a bar with some drinks made out of it. I mean, this is, a, this is like a cultural phenomenon that won't really go away. Right. And, and it, it, it's almost like there's an investment in keeping it a mystery. Like there's, there's value in that. And for some people, I'm sure there is. Uh, but then there, are, you know, Sometimes there are doctors that don't seem to want to heal, and then there are sometimes there are doctors that really want to heal. And there is a investigator that we know personally who has gone 
uh, above and beyond in research and evaluation on this case, who has real life experience doing exactly the things that someone like D.B. Cooper could have done. Um, he's a pilot, uh, skydiver, um, and he's gone about making a documentary that uh, Rick has been involved in. And it was, uh, in my opinion, a really powerful documentary by a person who's not a documentarian, but you can tell worked really hard to try to bring something together that uh, really was done out of pure, I don't know, would you call it love, man? Well, I mean, what would you say about Session, Dan? Uh, he definitely was on it, and, and you've met him. He's uh, definitely a guy that uh, doesn't take no for an answer. Uh you know, uh, he mentioned to you, he's, he's been trying to contact me for close to 20 years. And, um, <clears throat> until recently, and we'll get into the why I started, uh, even having discussions with him. Um, yeah, I pretty much ignored him for close to 20 years. But anyway, <laughs> which, if you know Dan, is not the easiest thing to do. But, um, yeah, uh, some things happened in my life. My mother passed, my grandmother passed, and, um, and right after that, Dan contacted me, and I. We we can mention who it is, Dan Greider. Um, yeah, he's got a YouTube channel. He's been investigating this for like twenty years, and and he's he's kind of the reason why it's so important is because his his analysis and his conclusions have been very uh, the same as as what. Yeah, so you know this is you know it's it's kind of interesting that. I don't know. It's like, it's been my life, if that makes sense. Like, it's always been what it was, but we just didn't talk about it. And we always knew that even when I would say to a few people, hey, my dad was this, they're like, well, how do you know? How do you know? That was, but it was just a family thing. And it was kept very close to the best uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, we'll get into who my dad was, what happened to my dad, and who was involved with this. And at the end of the day, um, both ha uh, hijackings, Dan Cooper and uh, you know, the uh, Jay Johnson uh, hijackings, my mother was a ton of percent involved with, which she was, um, I guess, I don't know, culpable. And um, even though that came out in a, a book, which she sued in the early 90s and got the rights for because uh, my dad's first lawyer, essentially, uh, broke confidentiality and uh, was written by a couple FBI agents and she ended up getting the book rights to that. But in that, even a lawsuit, it was pretty much admitted that she had uh, been, you know, directly involved in the hijackings. But um, anyway, that was, it was kind of like a, a family thing to keep that very, uh, you know, close to the best. So, yeah, that is, that is why it's taken so long even to come out. And what's also interesting is I figured I'd be the one to come out, but, uh, my sister who's, you know, uh, because of age, a lot closer to my dad, who I thought would never come out, but she's also come out with me to kind of get this out here. That's great. So did you guys purposely wait for your mom and your grandma to pass away? Oh, I mean, it wasn't waiting. I just knew it couldn't be talked about. I mean, waiting would not be the, that's <laughs> what, the, what I would say, but yeah. Oh, knowing Rick for years, I've, I've been lucky enough to know about this information and have seen his way of 
explaining it, he's, he's extremely tight lipped around it. You know, um, you know, I'm, it's interesting for me to even talk about. Like this is this is obviously besides talking with Dan a little bit on film. This is this is it. This is uh, yeah. I'm not a public well, and speaker, the, and it's uh, yeah. And that's one of the things that attracted Dan to you as well. Is like all these other people are coming out with their theories, and there's been like the F. The, there have been there's been so many people coming forward. Oh, I know Dan Cooper. This is Dan Cooper. Da 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 for so long, but you guys didn't want to talk, and that's what he was like. Well, they're not the McCoys aren't talking. Yeah, but I mean that was for uh for protection for for you know real loyalty around people that were you know family and and there was real love in there and you know when you're protecting your loved ones you know uh some type of or any type of sensationalism around yourself means nothing. You know what I mean? So it's <clears throat> it's to me I know his motives now for doing this thing, you know, and I know that they're genuine and that's why I feel, you know, to be, uh, it's, it's such amazing to be a part of it all, but because the story deserves to be told because the character behind D.B. Cooper, D.B. Cooper is a mask for the real individual, the real individual who carries the same name, the same moniker, Richard Floyd McCoy, the second and, and junior. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you have a, a, a powerful history there um, with a, a person who was remarkable and it's worth doing just that, you know, telling the story uh, of the man who ultimately would, and I have no, I believe 100%, and would ultimately go on to hijack two planes out of necessity, you know, ultimately. And, uh, and I think telling that story of why it would come to something like that has so much value, but there's so much to build up to that point, right? Those things are a blip in time compared to, let's say, a hundred combat missions or, um, you know, a life of devotion to the church, a, a, a life of devotion to the family. I mean, these are the things that ultimately drive a person. And you this, know? This, is, yeah, this is why I want to get it out there. Like uh, a lot of people, I mean, my dad as Richard... Floyd McCoy is famous in his own right for uh, what a lot of people call the copycat. But um, at the end of the day, he, you know, it's this broad, broad stroke of he's a criminal. He, you know, he, you know, outside of doing that, he escaped from uh, Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary, you know, which was the only person to ever escape from Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary as well. Um, and again, this broad strokes of this master criminal um, and, you know, growing up with this uh, in the shadow in a, in a lot of ways, uh, I, so many people have come up to me and, you know, on, on, on their own and just told me what an amazing man my father was. And, you know, ultimately, that's why I want to tell the story is really give this man, you know, give him give him his due yeah and and the the thing about him was 
the complexity that makes it so interesting. You know, it makes it fascinating to see someone who could be willing to sacrifice himself in a situation, um, but who also felt, you know, um, who felt justified in his actions because, you know, he felt like he had been wronged. Right. You know, and, 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 really, and yeah. the re- re- retaliation. I mean, is it wrong for a man to retaliate, or should we take everything lying down? And when a, a man who is so highly trained and skilled in combat and in doing things that could have led to a massive destruction, like a demolition expert, who goes about committing seemingly criminal acts but yet never hurts anybody never hurt i mean there's lots of uh situations that he could have hurt somebody and chose not to at his own peril and another part of the story that i definitely want to get out well let's get it out man um you know let's go back to let's go back to him being a young character and the the idea of uh chasing some adrenaline you know what I mean? Uh, what's a what's a good story? Because I can think of one. Uh, uh, I mean, there's let's go. Let's go motorcycle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he was a, I guess, early '60s, a big motorcycle fanatic, and I guess uh, the story was for thrills. He would, you know, back then the highways were two lanes, and his thrill was go down the center lane at 120 miles an hour. Um, full traffic you know that was you know a foot on each side going 120 miles an hour through traffic on going both ways you know that was just testing, enjoyed the thrill testing, i got testing testing, testing the, fate. the was, water yeah he, you know um he was we've talked about this and obviously i don't necessarily relate to this but a highly religious man like he grew up as a mormon um and Ended up going to BYU Brigham Young University, which is very strict, especially then uh, Mormon school, and really, um, yeah, like lived outside of being in a drilling junkie, really lived for the church. So it was uh, very interesting through his life. And, you know, when we get to all the stories, he really, strangely, I guess, in some ways thought. Not that he was protected, but he 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 was okay with, yeah. He had faith. He had a lot of faith. Yeah. And faith gives you a lot of confidence. I guess so. You know, <laughs> I mean, the right people it gives the right confidence. There's no question, man. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, it was a, it's, again another interesting dynamic in his life that he was so, like. When we'll get into his Vietnam, he served two doors in Vietnam. And wanted to go back for a third. Yeah, wanted to go back for a third. And he was not, um, he enlisted, he was not drafted. And, um, you know, he, even when he had R&R over in Vietnam, he wanted to go and do missionary work instead of go, you know, to the beach. You know, it was just, that's what he, what he was about. Which is like to have this thing almost seamless where you are taking massive risks in combat and then also holding this devout religious 
belief, you know, um, sometimes in the modern world, we look at that as being dangerous, <laughs> right? Because of how empowered a person is willing, you know, life and death becomes like a veil because people are willing to almost die for what they believe in or they are willing to die for what they believe in. Even when we get to the uh, hijackings, and this is from my mother, you know, he didn't, he went into that situation with two options, not three options. And the three options were get away with it, die trying, which were his options. He never actually took into consideration he might get caught and go to prison, strangely enough. So, I know that's that would be the normal uh, three choices that would or options. But uh, yeah, he and when he was finally sentenced for um, the um, United Eight Five Five, he arrogantly, I guess maybe, looked at the judge and flat out said, "You're not going to keep me." And um, and uh, the judge kind of laughed at that, and you know, we're sending you to federal penitentiary, and good luck with that. He's like, we'll see. And- yeah. And McCoy was like, we'll see. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, he, uh, even in that instance, you know, according to this, my mother again, you know, he would, again, rather die or he's going to escape. It was very binary, interestingly enough. And, you know, at, at the very end, you know, he could have uh, went to Canada, went to Went to Mexico. My mother begged him to, but even on the run, he just wanted to be near his family. So it was uh, ended up being his downfall, obviously. But yeah, he he was he was very uh, willing to take risks for what he wanted. So, so can we just back up with some context for that then? Because you're talking about when he went to prison the first time. Right. Well, after well, it was one and the only time. Right. Oh, I thought he went. T- I thought he went twice. No, he went once. Okay. Well, there was two prison. Two, there was two escapes. Two escapes. He escaped from the transfer. They were transferring oh. some from Salt Lake to uh, Pennsylvania. That was literally the next day. Okay. So, 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 because he that was from the hijacking that we talked yes. about. The J. What was it called again? It was a different name. Jay right? Johnson, which was actually named another that, alias. Which was another alias after named after something in Vietnam. I think uh, right? a, f- a famous a f- mess hall about no, another war ham- hero, hero uh, J. Uh, James uh, Johnson uh, mess hall in Japan. Yeah. Yeah, and this so this is five months after the original DP Cooper one, where nobody really found the. Yeah, you, and put into uh, context also, there were a bunch of hijackings at the time, but my dad was the only one to actually jump out of a plane. All the other hijackings were, "Hey, give me money, take me to Cuba," or "Hey, give me money, I want to go to Mexico," and they weren't successful. Uh, my dad was the only one to actually jump out of a and. Uh, for the uh, original one, you also think that was the first, right? So when he asked for parachutes, nobody knew what he was going to do. This is, this is all, this is all new. Because he asked for four, too, which, makes, four, it like which not, was, makes it like maybe people are going, he's yeah, taking he, people with him. Yeah, he mu- taking people with him so they wouldn't give him a dummy um, parachute. So, yes, the... You know, there's which was a lot of the story is there was just a lot of incompetence on the FBI's part, and the the whole story starts from them putting out 
DB instead of Dan to, you know, we'll get into um, where they thought he jumped and he didn't jump to uh, they, the, the official story was it was a stormy night. And if you look at the, uh, um, the weather station, the official record from the weather station in that area, it was a clear night. And this was all coming out information from the FBI. It was all wrong from day one. They show up at some guy's house that had a uh, overdue uh, library book named Dan Cooper. No, well, D.B. Cooper. Cooper, yes. D.B. Cooper, while the hijacking is still going on. Like, this is, they search in an area that's not even close to where he jumps out. I mean, this, from the get-go, there's a lot of, well, it seemed like they were way off course initially, and then something somewhere, it seemed like they there was so much speculation that there's no way he could have landed, there's no way he could have pulled it off. The top experts were all... Well, experts, like none of these guys have flight, none of these guys have... Parrot. These are FBI experts that have no flight... Well, they also picked places like where they believed that he landed that were treacherous, also really dark. You know, if you were going to do something as smooth as D.B. Cooper did. You wouldn't pick the jump out where they said he jumped. No. And wouldn't you wouldn't you plan everything from top to bottom? I mean, and what kind of person plans things? like this from top to bottom and then really pulls them off. Somebody who probably has done things like this before, you know, and, and that's the thing about what your dad has done. I mean, he, he, he had done missions, hundreds maybe, yeah, right? Was, yeah. I mean, yeah, omissions. We'll go into his uh, military career. Let's go career. into it. Yeah, let's go, let's into, go that, into it now. That thing you were going to read. I do want to. Yeah. I also have something from the FBI.gov that that's current right now. Yeah. If if you want to hear what they yeah. say before we go into that, because the Dan the DB thing as well. Dan Cooper was the original thing on the Flight Manifest, which was a comic book from French Can- Canadians. I think we're going way back with a like a, a hero called Dan Cooper. It was well, pretty there was a love of comic books. There was. Was there? Was. Oh yeah, there was. yeah I was going to ask you about that. That's books. really interesting. So that that helps the whole case. So so this is from an official. It's like he didn't do anything by. Accident. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what the FBI are saying here. They're saying uh, by the five year anniversary of the hijacking, we considered more than 800 suspects and eliminated all but two dozen from consideration. One. And so this is interesting because it's the one the one guy he really mentions on here is, is Richard Floyd McCoy. But he says one person from our list, Richard Floyd McCoy, is still a favorite suspect among many. We tracked down and arrested McCoy for a similar airplane hijacking and escape by parachute less than five months after Cooper's flight. But McCoy was later ruled out because he didn't match the nearly identical physical descriptions of Cooper provided by two flight attendants and for other reasons. So, I mean, they're just saying in there and for other other reasons. They, they can't even give you like... They're just saying these sketches that he doesn't match the sketch, basically. So, that no, was. That, that's something they brought up. And again, I'm, I'm not arguing this and we'll go into the evidence. But what's funny is they used that nobody kind of... Uh, pick him out of the lineup. Uh, nobody could pick him out of the lineup of the uh, hijacking that he was convicted of. Exactly the same thing. And it's that's why the FBI says, and we'll go into that why. And But yeah, it's uh, that's that's their the, the, the hat they hang there. Their. And, you know, uh, your dad looked like he had been through two tours in Vietnam. 
I mean, he carried that he, on he him. Did. He did. He, he definitely he, looked he, much older than he, he was. He was a he was a strong, healthy looking man, but at the same time, the weight that he carried in his eyes was uh, was real, and um, and you could see it in the pictures, and you could see pictures of him like young and eager, and then post tours, and it's like eight years he aged twenty. You know what I mean? Like, and you could really see it in him. And the the fact is, is that he was wearing a disguise. He was wearing sunglasses. He he was doing things that were out of character, drinking and smoking, which is things that a Mormon man uh, who was faithful did not do. He was, you know, specifically trying to look different than Richard McCoy. And he pulled it off two times in a row and and you know and what that what that goes to show is that just like switching the name from Dan Cooper to DB Cooper things get lost in history things shift we believe all kinds of crazy shit as people we really don't know things after a certain period you know i mean we really get lost i mean you can know the general but you it's hard to know details sometimes and when you have a whole tray of cigarette butts but you lose them you know what I mean? Like, it's ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like, oh, and the, the FBI agent admitting on camera that there's no way he could have survived that. Well, know? that's my I mean, point. There's zero percent. You're like, what? And then the guy does the it five months come later. Up to, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it just goes to show that they're, it's either they want to be off trail or who cares? They're just, they're not, they're not, they're not thinking it through. It's like, what, what, you know, it's very interesting because, um, obviously the official stance of the FBI was, it wasn't my father, but, uh, the man that killed my father, I mean, he officially said when I, sh when I shot Richard McCoy, I shot DB Cooper. Uh, the, the original book was written by FBI agents. Uh, almost everybody at the time, inside the FBI was 100% it was my dad. So I, I'm not sure exactly outside of some conspiracy, like why the FBI, FBI's official stance was not, which very interesting. Even, even now. Could it have been that maybe there was mistakes made? In, well, that, and in that's, the case? that's, I mean, from the get go, I mean, they literally, you know, my dad, how about warrantless searches? Yeah. Well, everything was warrantless which is insane like uh the search they pulled they did on after uh the jay johnson they literally took money parachute uh typewriter that notes were t uh typed on and um 100 warrantless and of course you know my um father's lawyers tried to get everything dismissed and they were not having it even though every bit of evidence there was no evidence outside of that that was actually taken legitimately. And they went ahead and prosecuted him. Even, I mean, he was guilty, not, not to take up for that. But constitutionally, they, they did everything wrong. Did he ever admit guilt? No. He did not. No. That's what I'm saying. Like he, they went to trial. He fought it. And the only evidence they had outside, well, they had my... But all the evidence, even the, all the physical evidence was taken from a, uh, you know, a, a search that was without a warrant. And uh, we'll get into and when they killed him, 
they also entered the house he was living in without a warrant and ambushed him. And, and so let's just imagine the situation being, um, in a time at the end of the war, uh, with soldiers coming back who have a lot of disabilities, who are pressured into trying to fit back into society. And, and PTSD was not a thing back then. Not a thing at all. And you had the, you know, a, a person in a situation where he might have been desperate in action, but if you were to actually look into this person and then start to understand who he was and what he had done for the country, he might not have seemed to be so villainous, right? It was easy to make your father into a copycat villain right out of the gate and then bury that story so we don't talk about that anymore. And and then we we glamorize the other story. And yeah. analyze the reactions for yeah. decades. Right. I mean, that's the way I go to it. Like, they're, they're just watching everybody go around in circles over this thing that should be closed off. I mean, would you believe they might an analyze it? Yeah, they, they might. <laughs> you know, another, another thing, right? Uh, Himmelsbeck was the um, um, chief FBI, uh, in, I guess, Seattle. And what was also like, he came out and was like, oh, this guy was just cussed like a sailor. Like, just the FBI's official story. And everybody on the plane, well, had contact with him. was like, he was a plightist. And for whatever reason, even... And the, the stewardess has always said that. Yeah, but, but that's what I'm saying. The stewardess, the people that actually had co contact with him were like, oh, he was the nicest guy. He was very polite. Um, but the official story, even though that was the only people that had contact with, he was just this... Degenerate. It was cussing everybody. I mean, nobody even knew there was a hijacking going on until they, they were off the plane, like except for the steward, except for the flight crew. So it was just a very weird uh, stance. Stance the FBI, the FBI took right, right away. Weapons yeah. were fake. Hmm? Fake gun, fake grenade. Right. Every uh, everything was fake. Well, it wasn't a fake gun. It was unloaded gun. It was unloaded gun. And yeah. uh, the you know he was a demolition. You know, uh, special forces, a uh, Green Beret demolition. Demolition expert, so it was really easy for him to make a fake briefcase with a fake bomb in it. He knew exactly what it would look like, and um, yeah, that's what he did. Everything. I mean, and my mother, you know, we'll go back to my a lot of this stuff. His family passed on, but you know, my mother was very clear that my dad was never going to. Like I said, we can go into many stories. It was, the whole thing was he wouldn't harm anybody. He'd either get away with it or not get away with it, and there was never going to be anybody harmed. So. Why don't we take a minute and go through some of that army record and stuff that Brandon was going to take us through before we go much further so we can kind of set that non-villainous record straight before we... He was a war hero. Yeah. There's a... God, I, that's something I should also brought up. There's a letter before he escaped prison, like, uh, talk, essentially asking the judge, for, you know, for some leniency. And it... He... And he wrote everything, essentially his whole service out. And yeah, the judge had, you know, zero mercy. So this was, and this was written right when he got, is that the one that was written right when he got into prison? Like that day? And then he escaped that next no, day? No, no, or, no, no. no this was, was a, uh, so he was in prison, gosh, less than two years before he escaped. But what he had done was he was exhausting all 
legal remedies to at least get a reduced sentence because they sentenced him to 45 years. And essentially when the final ruling came back that they weren't going to reduce anything, that's within a month he was, he escaped. And that was, I mean, he had planned it, but it was, he would, he did go through all the legal means to try to get it. You know, he did the whole, you know, I'm a, the young kids, I'm a, I'm a war veteran. And, and the story goes, uh, judge Ritter, I believe his name was, he was a federal judge in Salt Lake that hated Mormons, which is a very interesting place to be a federal judge if you hate Mormons. But, um, yeah, that was, that was, I mean, he, he made it very clear even then that he was going to make an example out of my father and thus the 45 year sentence. While we're there, can we talk about the first escape? Oh, yeah. The first escape was, um, uh, a transportation escape. So, um, between, uh, Salt Lake and, uh, Lewisburg, um, they stopped overnight in Colorado. So anyway, so they put him in a drunk tank and, uh, in the morning there is a drunk guy in there that is passed out and they had different bracelets and he switched bracelets with the, uh, <laughs> the drunk guy. And when the, uh, sheriff came in to take him into court, he just, whatever the guy's name was, he raises his hand and said, Oh, that's me. And you know, the story outside of that was, um, this is another example. It was just him and the sheriff. He could have, he wasn't handcuffed. He could have just knocked the hell out of him and he chose to run for it. And the reason I, he was, he was, dad was kind of upset about that because it ended up being that dude just kicked the shit out of him when they finally caught him. And he chose not to harm that dude. So even at his own peril again, and you know, he could have, you know, my dad was fairly, physical and could have done whatever but again he chose to not do that and ended up biting him in the ass i guess but and that that gentleman whoever that was a sheriff ended up like i said kick yeah because he was they had some do-gooder actually tackled my dad and then that guy got up to him and you know messed him up pretty bad i from what i understand before they yeah took him back into custody um, second escape was pretty ingenious. Um, so it was, it was like a pattern and how the pattern was, is you had to stay so far away from the fence, right? When you're out of the yard. So my dad with some other inmates would start doing a, um, a morning routine of running and they literally took months, but they'd come a, cl- a foot closer every week. Every, and then to get to like, finally the guards just got used to him running along the fence line. And this was over like a year, a year, you know, some months. Month. So it was just like, it was a long game. Yeah. So at that by they wouldn't let anybody get near it, but they, these four prisoners, they would just do it. And then over the year, they, they would allow the, them because they just got so used to them to get near the fence. Exercising. Yes. And, uh, very interesting. I, I actually had this story wrong. I thought my dad worked in the dentist uh, department, but I actually met the guy this year that was in prison that was friends with my dad that worked in the dental department. He said he was the one that gave him dental paste and he molded a fake gun out of dental paste. And um, 
what he did was they timed it and there was a garbage truck and they essentially used the fake gun to hijack the uh, garbage truck and they busted out the front gate with a garbage truck. And to this day, this is uh, how life works out. Uh, in my martial arts journey um, in the 90s, I was doing martial arts and one of the guys I was doing martial arts with was actually a prison guard up at Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary. And he actually took me up there just because that's where he worked. And I was up there and I was like, oh, this is my dad. And they're like, oh, my God, that's, you know, they do as when you become a guard, that's part of the training is about my dad. Because <laughs> that's still the only escape, that's right? That's still to this day the only escape from that uh, federal penitentiary. I bet you they don't let anyone run up against a fence anymore. They, they do not do that. And this is a, my dad changed a lot of things in the airline and in prisons. Is so. that why I have to take my shoes off? What's that? Is that why I have to take my shoes off? No, I just have hardwood floors. <laughs> no, I mean when I get on the airplane. Oh, no, that was 9-11. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what, what, now they have... Yeah, yeah, that might be a, yeah. yeah back then, the, yeah, it wasn't real ID. You could just walk up to a ticket and say, what, my name's... Yeah, my my name is Dan Cooper, my and I'll be taking Cooper, a ticket. Boom. Yeah, so... But nowadays, they hold uh, garbage trucks. They have a a stage so it's a three-day system to come in and out with garbage trucks now so the, because they got so close to the fence they were able to jump in the truck kind yeah, of thing or yeah. jump to the truck, is the that truck. What, right right they just knew it was timing they knew right. when the garbage came and yeah you know, over time they they had a system and they were waiting so again nobody got harmed and one of the stories from there they this look back then lewisburg was in the middle of nowhere so also, there wasn't like, I'm sure they had radios and stuff, but when he escaped, they found a house and they went in this house and they were going to um, take this older couple's car. And I guess during the escape, and this, this is actually, I got this from my mother and uh, Walker, one of the guys that he escaped with, that they were trying to leave and the, the old man was having heart issues and my dad wouldn't leave him stay with him and of course the rest of the criminals are like let's go let's go and my dad made, even though they tied him up made sure he got his medicine and ended up when they when the uh they got rescued the police got there or whoever was searching for my dad you know they, they were like oh this guy was so nice he made sure i was okay you know uh, even dirt while they were under the duress of escaping i mean even the regret from the man who would ultimately turn him in, who was a friend, right? You want to go down those roads? <laughs> Talk about him a bit, you uh, know? Let's do the... Let's do the reading. Okay. Yeah, we, we, it's good to, it's, I really want to get in yeah. what, what happened, what, where he came from. Yeah. <clears throat> what are you going to read first? Let's go, Brandon. Are we reading... Uh, um, are we reading the uh, Distinguished Flying Cross? You want to name some of the awards real quick? Uh, I, 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 Just do it. Man, there's a, a list. Well, but what can you – what do we have? We have the Distinguished, Distinguished Flying, Flying Cross. Cross, which, I, you know, my understanding is like the equivalent to the uh, Medal of Honor, but for flying. A uh, bunch of um, – was the, the Purple Heart, which he um, – also, which I think you got a letter in his own words. Um, essentially, he – took shrapnel because he didn't want to harm somebody. Um, 
he had uh, the combat bars with um, with the bronze leaves, which he got two of those, which was fifty missions. So there's per leaf. So yeah, he's yeah. So yeah, there's medal for heroism. I mean, there's yeah, there's this, yeah, there's a huge list. Uh, again, he was a war hero. It's not. There was a letter re his wounding, but that's the other one we talked about. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, Oak Leaf Clusters, Award of Distinguished Flying, Aviation uh, Aircraft Rescue. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, there's, uh, let's see, I have some notes on. There's it's literally his uh, two uh, Air Medals, Army uh, Accommodation for Heroes, Heroism. Um, uh, let's see. I don't know. There's a, there's a list. It's, it's uh, yeah, about as uh, heroic as you can get. Warrant Officer McCoy distinguished himself by exceptional valorous action during the early morning hours of 8th November 1967. While serving as a helicopter pilot with the Air Cavalry Troop 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment in the air over Vietnamese Popular Forces Compound at Jue Due Can, seven miles northwest of Tan Lin, Vietnam. Upon hearing that the compound was in the process of being overrun by a large Viet Cong force, Warrant Officer McCoy volunteered to fly his aircraft to the scene in support of the friendly forces. In spite of poor visibility due to thick ground fog and intermittent cloud layers and a couple or in complete lack of tactical maps for the area. Flying by instrumentation and radio alone, Warren Officer McCoy located the compound and came under automatic weapons and small arms fire. With the position of the compound marked by flare and firelights marked by tracer rounds, Warren Officer McCoy began a series of firing passes, launching rockets directly into the Viet Cong position until all ammunition was expended. Due to his courageous flight and highly accurate fire, the enemy was completely routed, leaving 20 bodies behind. Warrant Officer McCoy's outstanding flying ability and devotion to duty are in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service and reflect great credit upon himself, his unit, and the United States Army. Wow. I think that helicopter was uh, uh, damaged beyond repair after yeah, that he flight as well. Yeah, he got back to base. He was, again, another another thing that happened to him that kind of gave him a little, uh, I don't know, ego, I guess, about cheating death. You know, they uh, you know, literally had to decommission that um, helicopter afterwards because it took so much fire, but he, he actually did not get hit, even though the helicopter was trashed. And he was the one who decided to go in when other helicopters stood down. Yeah, so it was it was actually the uh the friendly Vietnamese that was un- under attack. So it wasn't a uh US base, it was a friendly friendly Vietnamese base and the rest of the helicopter pilots were like, yeah, we don't care. And uh it was obviously voluntary at that point and my dad yeah, said, yeah, we're not going to let this happen and volunteered and went in. And that's the one he got the flying cross for. Yeah. 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 So that one of many, but yeah, one of many stories. 
how old was he? So that was 67. 67. So he was 27, 27, 28. So that was second tour? Yeah, yeah. it would be a second tour, yeah. 27 years old. What were we doing when we were 27? <laughs> not in the jungles of Vietnam. And he we was doing, doing spiritual work there too, like yeah, you mentioned, Yeah, he was right? doing a lot of mission. Yeah, he was yeah, on his R&R. Like I said, he didn't really... I mean, I think he did take some R&R because I know he went over to Japan. But um, when he would get time off, he would do missionary work. And of course, I think he got in some, like, not trouble, but they're like, what you know, you're taking a lot of risk to go into villages to do missionary work. But that's, you know, his time and that's what he did. Was he doing any during the tour at all for Was the army what? at all? Like for the doing any missionary work for the army or not missionary, but... Um, religious work for no, them? No, no, this was just yeah, outside, the, yeah, yeah. outside of that, outside of the military. This is our own time. Yeah. yeah. When did he get back from Vietnam? 68. And so, then, so, so he went over and... Uh, then he got hurt, right? Yeah, he got, he got a... Uh, I mean, he, he came back in 67. Um, I'm trying to... I think he went over in 64. I actually wrote that down. Yeah, he finished... He enlisted in 62. He actually had... Because he went in the Green Berets and he became Special Force. He had two years of training, like just straight training before he actually did any service. And then he did two years of training and then went straight to Vietnam as a demolition expert in an A-team with the Green Berets. So, so a very specialized, small, I think it was 12-person small team. And from what I understand, it was like every specialty had two. Like if you were a demolition expert, you had two demolition experts. If you were a medic, you had two medical experts and so it was six teams up to so and that and that's where he ended up getting a uh, purple heart was in dur- during that tour and uh second tour second tour second tour he came like i say so was that the uh, like the purple heart did that end his vietnam service no or he went back again he actually didn't even come home he want he he was they offered him to go home but he want, didn't want to he wanted to finish out his tour so he actually, after getting wounded, he, he went back to his unit. And then he came came home and went to school in between his yeah, two tours? he came back to school, went... Uh, to a helicopter? Yep. And back in 67, he went to uh, Fort Rucker and um, got his helicopter, helicopter license and then... Went yeah. back and shot the shit out of... Yeah, and then... Six, <laughs> this guy. Do yes. you have that letter then that he wrote when he was... When yeah. He was, uh, in his own words, that'd be great to hear. Yeah, this is a school paper that he wrote about his uh, his wounding in between. So he came back, went back to school, and this is he wrote this paper. This, so this uh, this letter that Brandon's going to read is actually his own words about the so this would have been same. sixty-seven. Sixty-seven. So yeah. he's around twenty-seven years old. Yeah. So cool because it still has the corrections in the paper, and yeah, it was written on yeah. a typewriter. Yeah, still got the tight. I mean, and this is, I feel like he was trying to to do it artistically. I feel like there's a quality to your dad and all the things that he did where the high skill and artistic-like approach to everything that he went after. I mean, he didn't want to suck. He wanted to be the best. The best. Yeah. And, 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 this is 65, 66, because he went back to Vietnam, yeah. Yeah, so. so this is in between tours. Yeah, so this 
65 because he re-enlisted. He was in the reserves, but re-enlisted in 66. When he was born, 40? 42. 42. So he's like 23. Okay. Yeah, better. I'm terrible with math. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So 23. Yeah. Go through the whole thing? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Decisions in battle. I was crouched in a shallow hand-dug ditch behind a large palm tree, which afforded limited protection from the angry snapping and whining bullets which filled the air. Although excited, I was not frightened, but my mouth felt dry, and I could feel my heart pounding against my ribs. This was the moment for which all my training was directed. The enemy was only yards away, beyond the clearing, and our own men were behind them, pushing them out of the narrow strip of trees and thick green jungle vegetation which lined the banks of the Mekong River. The enemy consisted of a small squadron of men which we outnumbered three to one. They had a choice of either making a death stand or making a run over across the field where I was posted. Suddenly, a short, small-built Vietnamese man clad in black pajamas ran out of the dense foliage in the open field in clear view. This was the enemy, and it was now my job to stop him. Would I be able to carry out the job for which I had been trained? In our culture, war is thought as a necessary part of survival. And depending upon the particular time that one is born, there is a prevailing attitude for or against war. Most of us who were young children after World War II were nurtured on the ideas of war heroes fighting for one's country and killing the enemy. In most war movies or books, the John Wayne or Audrey Murphy type of hero is use <laughs> this is where it's, there's some things going on here in the shown killing the enemy in the face of insurmountable odds and the killing is or and the, I'm sorry and the enemy I'm trying to see what that is is that was usually depicted as the stereotypical robot in uniform Seldom, seldom was that thought brought out that this enemy soldier might also be human, with human emotions, family ties, and future aspirations like the hero. What about my enemy in the black pajamas? This enemy was now within 20 yards, running diagonally towards me, but oblivious to my presence. From the way he was leaning forward and clutching the side, or clutching his side with his right hand, it appeared that he may have already been wounded. Though he appeared unarmed, I raised my M16 rifle to my left shoulder and ordered him to halt. Dong Lai. 
Ignoring my command, he continued running as fast as possible, and I fired a short burst of automatic rifle fire, not to kill him, only to warn. He continued to run across the field toward the six-foot-high elephant grass, and I then had to decide whether to kill him immediately, overcome him physically before he reached the cover. Sorry, I left out a little bit there, but you understand what I'm saying. Common sense told me to shoot. But my sense of fair play would not allow me to shoot what appeared to be an unarmed man. I charged out of my protected position, determined to overcome him before he escaped into the grass. Within a few seconds, rifle in hand, I narrowed the space between him and I tackled him in the distance. As the volume of rifle fire intensified, I began to seriously question my motives and intentions for coming out in the open. At the same time, it dawned upon me that the crack and snap of the bullets was getting uncomfortably close. Suddenly, the enemy, my enemy paused, buckled at the knees, and crumbled to the ground. A split second later, still in full stride, I heard an ear-shattering explosion and immediately felt a burning sensation as huge hunks of metal ripped into my right arm and left leg. It was my turn to crumble into the ground. Later in the hospital, I learned that, the fe- that a fellow soldier had observed my supposedly unarmed enemy holding a grenade close to his body. By his decision to shoot him, he undoubtedly saved my life. The enemy soldier smothered the blast with his body. Until this time, I had always felt that I could perform the job of killing the enemy in a true John Wayne fashion, but I did not realize that killing, even in war, oftentimes meant difficult moral decisions. I now realize that the conventional war ideas of killing the enemy could not easily replace my personal standards, even under military orders. In my mind, this was not just the enemy, but a man. A man, perhaps, with a wife and a family waiting for him back home while he performed a job called war. Many men justify unnecessary killing in different situations with the excuse that they are not responsible for their actions, but they are only victims of circumstances. In truth, though, war does not change man. Only man can change man. How how pertinent to today, twenty twenty two, right? With the wars, yeah, and the and stuff, and people not wanting to that do that is uh, just so you know. That's obviously 
first time that's ever been read aloud or, you know, outside of family. Just FYI. Um, and I, I feel honored and I've wished that I had had better practice. Uh, but to read it in the moment like that, to be with you guys, man, it means. Uh, that's why you read it and I didn't. I'd, I'd good, man. Good. Mess, so. Richard F. McCoy, English 212, March 5th, 1971. So now, now, this is interesting because it says March 5th, 1971. So now this must have been after his second tour. Oh, look at it. So yeah. now this so, is going to start to spill into he was, why. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, right? Because this, now, this is spill, probably okay, I'm only, sorry. Yeah, this was this paper. Sorry, this is the probably paper was six months. That's no problem. This is probably what six, seven, eight months before the first hijacking. So yes. now this is, if I'm not mistaken, he's come back from Vietnam and he wants to get into being a pilot full time. Right. So can you sort of take us through so, that and lead us up to this? So also, ironically, he was. His degree at BYU was criminal justice. He actually wanted to go into law enforcement. And law enforcement for him was to be a helicopter pilot for law enforcement. Um, I guess there's a lot of uh, speculation around what was causing this. And Agent Orange or he did some they he got some fungus stuff in his ears when um he was over his first tour because of all the swamp stuff either way uh, around this time he was having um really bad migraines and he went to the va and instead of helping him they just pretty much threatened to take his helicopter pilot uh, license and also at this time he, you know he is flying actively with the uh, utah air national guard and which was also very dear to him and um I think this this is where it kind of spiraled out for him. You know, um, he he always dreamed of being a pilot, so, and thus he and he obviously fulfilled his dream. And now, outside of everything, he's he's done everything right. And now the the answer was to say "fuck you," just take your license and figure it out. And uh, I think that, according to my mom and my grandma, that yeah, you know, that was just kind of a turning point for him. You know, he had given as you, you saw, he's given his good part portion at this point of his life to the u.s military the united states government whatever you want to say and their reaction was pretty much f you and kind of goes back into some of the motivation and uh, you know in the first hijacking um i believe it was one of the stewardess said do you have a grudge with the airline and my dad answered no i just have a grudge and this was a grudge, you know, he felt very, uh, betrayed, you know, he gave, you know, put his, his very own life, you know, many, many times, you know, over a hundred combat missions. And this is, this was what he got in return and, and, and no help. So I met, I might've missed that part about the migrants. Did they, did they say there was anything that he, they could he could do for that either? No, that's why they, they didn't offer any help. They just wanted to take away. Uh, just yeah, that to, was they. It's like, hey, you've got this disability. You can't do this, but we're not even. You we gotta, don't even have any solutions for you. You got to, th- you know, there is a, there's going to be a lot of, you know, here, even with the FBI, it was oh, it was a different time. It was a different time, All right? So uh, Vietnam, I, you know, if, obviously none of us are old enough to really remember that, but. If you know anything about history, it was not a very popular war, and um, the people, sorry, including the people that were, you know, uh, non-voluntary over there, they treated like shit, you know. And you know, the, 
my mom would tell stories about how when my dad would come back or do like he'd have to change uh, from uniforms to civilian even on the planes because if he, he went through the airports he'd get spit on. Wow! Just by being in the military, like it was a very different time. And also at that time, the I don't even know if the VA was really a thing. I mean, there was a VA, uh, but they didn't really help people. They, you know. Kind of just left them to their own when yeah, they got back. Yeah, there was no trauma and injuries. You know, and injuries, there was no, you know, real help for him. And again, instead of giving him help, they literally just wanted to take away his dreams. Did his injuries heal from the, like his side that was uh, yeah. full of shrapnel? Yeah, like he, yeah. He, like okay. said, he, he stayed over. So, yeah, he, that, that wasn't a problem. But after when he got back is when he started having migraines. And again, there's speculation it was either... Uh, exposure to uh, Agent Orange or the fungus, but because he it was definitely after the tours that he started having these migraines. <sighs> so that would take us up pretty much to the where we summarized before that first jump. Um, is there anything else you want to get through before we start getting into the particulars of that? I mean, I'll, I'll, if there is, I'll circle back. I'll, I'll, but yeah. yeah, yeah so we kind of, I think we kind of did a good job of summarizing the first, the first job. Is there anything else we want to go through on that before we kind of get into um, the. You know, again, part of my motivation is, you know, really painting who my dad, you know, was. And, uh, sorry. Take your time. Take your time, yeah. I think there's value also in looking at the particulars around the parachute. All right, we'll, we'll get we'll get to that. But yeah, I really yeah. wanted to cut. But I mean, touch. you know, as far as like within the first jump, is that you know even before we go into the real depth, I was just going to say that there were some some specific changes made. There was a reason that he picked a certain parachute, right. and you know. But, but let me, I'm yeah. going to cut you off there because I, I really want to get to my, um, it's one reason I let you read that letter. Um, sorry. Um, no problem. You know, they, history has painted my dad a certain way. And, but those were his own words. You read his own words, you know, and um, this is a man that, literally took shrapnel because he didn't want to harm another human in the time of war we would have you know the excuse you know as he wrote in his own words you know it war doesn't change man man changes man and he wouldn't let that and um one of the things that i really am going to push or make not push but i want to make very clear what type of man my dad was and on the face of a hijacking, uh, on the face value of a hijacking, it seems like he would have put people at harm. And I'm not saying he didn't scare some people, but it's it was a fact that he at no point was going to use any type of force. And uh, I just, you know, it's important to me that that's, that's shared. You know, so yeah, like you said, the two options, right? He didn't go there with an option of fighting anybody. No, or doing it was either like that. It was, they, they kill him. I mean, he literally said they, they're going to either kill me 
We're well, all get away ultimately, with Ultimately, he ended up getting shot by the government without ever having hurt anybody. Correct. Including, you know, the people that shot him. Exactly. 100%. They killed him without... Yeah. There was a... there Again, there was an official story, but all bullshit. None of that'll come out as well. Yeah, well, we went to the, to the house with the shotgun, and I mean... Is pretty plain with the pictures from the autopsy where people were standing when things went down. Yeah, it's very clear, and then I, I, I guess that's where we'll finish. But yeah, um, there was there was no shootout. They they ambushed my father in a house again, a warrantless uh, intrusion, and they waited without a warrant. You know, this again, what I've been told him even. Um, by the FBI themselves, and I can get into that story because I actually talked to the FBI a few years ago. Another unrelated issue, well, kind of related, but um, when I brought this up, when I brought things up, their answer to me is, "Oh, the FBI was different then; it was a different time." And you know, obviously it was, but they literally were above the law. They, you know, they the first warrant was or. Well, lack of warrant. All evidence in the second hijacking was taken without a warrant. The when they ended up killing my father, they entered the house without a warrant. No, no uh, permission from a judge or the right channels. And yeah, this was a pattern, I would say. And again, they just got away with it. That was Hoover's FBI. That was Hoover's FBI. Yes. Brandon, do you want to circle back to the parachute you were talking about? Well, I mean, that's <laughs> we're sitting with the man who knows all about the parachute. But um, there were things that make the parachute definitive. You know, there were adjustments made to there were four parachutes that were delivered. We talked about maybe we speculated on why he asked for four, but particularly there were four. And that gave him some choice. And so he, he chose one. He did. And um, I always get this guy. I'm going to say it's cozy was the uh, parachute rigger. So, again, let's take this in perspective. When he asked for these parachutes, A, the FBI did not own parachutes to hand to a hijacker, and B, they had no idea what he was going to do with the parachutes. So, what they did... Uh, they might have thought, or they were, you know, they, you know, I guess that was an option. They asked for parachutes... Yeah, and and take the uh, stewardess or the flight crew with them, and um, again, they thus the asking for four. But um, here, here, here's, and this is going to be out. So there are two things that my dad uh, left the plane with that he did not bring on, and that was money and a parachute, and that's just just the facts, right? So. What and we'll just get it. We'll you know we'll just cut right to the chase, um, and we'll. It's a crazy thing. I am, have been in the room with parach- parachute one and parachute tr- two, and literally those being in the same room happened with you guys. That's pretty. I mean, it's very amazing, man. It's amazing. Um, and and not just the parachutes, but you. 
<laughs> you were in the room with the parachutes, with the log books. With the log books, which we'll we'll get into as well. Uh, the practice jumps, all everything, all these things that have come to light. I knew. I mean, I knew they existed because they had to exist. I didn't know where they were. I assumed um, the second jump, the FBI had the parachute. I did not know it had been returned to. Um, my dad had borrowed it for the second. Like said after the first jump, we'll get into that parachute. And he's like, "Yeah, I'm going to bring my own parachute next time." <laughs> and um, so I didn't know that one still existed either. So it was. It's it's very surreal. Can I ask you a question, man? Yeah. All right. Go in there. Do you think Myrtle knew? Yes. Okay, can we say who Myrtle was, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, what well you say? Oh, um, man. I'm sorry, dude. So, fuck. Um, she was my dad's dad. and uh, Your dad's mom. mom. No, my dad's mom, sorry. See, sorry. That's all right, man. <laughs> sorry. Just take your time. Take your time, bro. Take your time. Yeah, she was just as tough as my dad. It was, uh, she was cut from the same cloth. Um, she was more like a mother, you know. Um, um, yeah, she was my unconditional love, you know. Um, fuck, it's hard to talk about it. She was the matriarch of the McCoy family. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Hard as hard as nails. Hard she as nails. protected your dad. She protected my dad. She protected me. You know. She, she protected was, everybody who was really under her. Yeah. Yeah. Whether she liked you or not, in a yeah, lot of ways, in a lot right? Of ways, yeah. If she, if you were family, she, you know, she forgave a lot and did a lot, for sure. And you were totally, and have always been, as far as I know, as far as I've known you, long as I've known you, loyal to a T to her. And and she was. I mean, I can just. I it, there was never a conversation that we had where grandma didn't come out of your mouth at some point in time in the Probably. conversation. Yeah, I was right? very close yeah. to my grandmother, right. and uh, you know, I was very. You know, she again part of this. I alluded to early on. I would never talk about this while she was alive, and I was very lucky that she lived to almost be a hundred and sharp as a tack, and uh, really. Um, you know, I guess at the very end, I was there for her, but always there for each other to the very end. And uh, come to find out, she was more gangster than I mean. She, you know, she uh, some things came to light the very last year of her life. Um, some stuff she kept about my dad from me. You know, um, we'll get in that or not, but I think we should. But but you know, my question of whether or not she knew. And she was hiding a lot of stuff, right? So she wanted, she wanted, she knew because she always alluded. Yeah, there was 100% she knew. There was, there's not a doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She knew what he was capable of. She, she was definitely, yeah, yeah. she you knew know, what he was she, capable um, of. I, I've, I've talked about how, like, I've always kind of idolized my father weirdly as not having a real relationship because my only memories of him really are uh, in prison, and then I don't know if they're memories of him, but. Obviously, his funeral, and then before that, just always having FBI agents hounding us, you know, while I was on the uh, run. So, um, can I, we side note real quick? Can you tell a story about your dad being able to 
move in and out of the house from yeah. time to so, time. <laughs> very, very, uh, you know, another story. This is my mother's story and, and, and my sister's. Um, so after he escaped, man, that, when he first escaped, let me start. Like, bleh, he first escaped, he went to the family farm and with uh, three other inmates. And at that point, they separated uh, two and two. They caught the other two almost immediately, and they thought they had my father surrounded. surrounded. And this is a story that they took my sister. This is the FBI, who was, I believe, eight at the time, and forced her to get on a microphone, a megaphone, and say, we're going to kill your father. And I had my sister on a megaphone, Daddy, come out. They're going to kill you. And they're forcing her to do this. And um, obviously, my mother was at work when she, she gets a phone call that, hey, my, she, another story. She knew my dad was escaping because she helped. But uh, <laughs> the story is, hell, the FBI is down here. So she's racing here. And my mother pulls up. And this became a, uh, another reason the FBI was not happy. But my mom went up to the head FBI and slapped him right across the face, which did not go over well. And which was the beginning of, you know, we're going to go a lot of, a lot of stories about the FBI from that moment forward saying, we're going to kill that motherfucker. We're not taking him alive. From that point forward, every, he had a hit. He, every, I'm telling you, every, person that was involved every relative and i had a lot of relatives down there especially at that time said every time we talked to the fbi they they made it very clear that they were going to kill him on site so going back though he was able to sneak in yeah oh so back to that right, so, right. sorry no, that's so, all right i I'm, i got it so <laughs> He, he, they, they were there like a week. He, he, he was bounced. He went through the canal system. He grew up there. He knew the farms. He knew the, the drainage ditches and he used a reed like he did in Vietnam and went through the ditch system and right out. Yeah. And so he's out and, but the FBI is always around. They're staking out our house. Well, we live in a trailer and my dad would sneak in like once a week with being surrounded to see my mother and um, because they were afraid of being bugged even then uh, they would, they would talk by writing on uh, pad and uh, pencil. And um, my sister actually has memories of this, but I don't because uh, well, for, they, I was a little hyperactive. They wouldn't wake me up. I guess he would come and give me a kiss on the forehead, but wouldn't wake me up because they were afraid I'd get too excited and not be able to keep my mouth shut. So, yeah. But he would. He did that quite a bit, even with the FBI right out, posted outside. <sighs> Four or five months. Yeah. Was he the only one of the escaped prisoners that got killed? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're, and we're going to... And that comes to light. Also, this is something that, you know. Uh, he escaped with a um, guy that was serving life sentence. His name was um, his last name was Walker, and he was a. I oh mean, God, he did kidnapping, 
somewhat famous bank robber. And while they were on the run, they were actually, they had robbed some banks because that was, and he had a, this guy had a direct relation with the FBI agent that ended up killing my father, who was the head of the um, Virginia Beach office. And Nick O'Hara, Nick O'Hara, Nick O'Hara. Um, and I'll get into him as well. But um, we, uh, let me flash forward to my, sorry, I'm going to go forward to like 1985. I, I want to say 1985. Um, I'm living in Salt Lake. And this was 74, in the 74, when he, when he was killed. Um, I get a knock at the door. I'm home alone. And I answer the door, and it's um, a guy introduced himself as Walker. I know who this guy is. I've heard about him my whole life. I know he's a guy, and I, I'm excited. I'm like, oh, shit. And, you know, I talk with this, and, and I, I want to say that for whatever reason, I want to say guilt or whatever, he spent an hour telling me what a good guy my dad was. Um, he, he mentioned that, you know, he when they were on the run, that my dad was always faithful to my mother. He'd know my, you know, he, he did some fuck shit, but, uh, you know, his dad, my dad was always told me that the only woman he had touched and would touch was my mother. Um, went on. He told me the story about how he went back and helped the um, older guy that when they escaped, you know, and stuff like that. And anyway, I had, had a, I would say a nice conversation. There were a lot of people who wanted to make clear who your dad was right. to you. Oh, yeah. To you. Oh, yeah. um, there, and, there was a lot. And uh, it was interesting because, you know, I know who this guy is and he comes. And again, at this point, moment i'm like oh that's this is so this is very cool it's a very personal thing for me because i knew the relationship to my father right and i called my mother up when he left and i was excited and my mother freaked out don't you answer that door she uh, she uh, called the local fbi and, and the reason why this is a big deal is again this is 85 they escaped in 74 and the minimum sentence on a uh, prison escape is 10 years. They robbed seven banks, which would have held another seven to 10 years per, and he was already serving a uh, life sentence. Ah, so he had escaped again. No. No? He cut a deal. Oh. He had my father yeah, killed. Yeah, 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 And helped write the book at the end. So he, that's why he came and tracked you down, because he felt like shit. Yeah. And there were a few of those situations, man, where I think... And just think about that. Like a minimum, minimum, 10 years. And he's out less than 10 years. And seven more bank robbers. Yeah, he should... Be, well, the sentence before he escapes. And, you know, that's when... We knew. I mean, we didn't... You know, we didn't know. They, we thought the FBI got lucky figured out but there is no other explanation and you know we've you know you're not going to get this out of the fbi again they're not gonna they're not gonna admit to anything um but there is no other i mean if you have that much time you do seven more bank robberies and you escape from prison you're getting another life sentence and this guy was out in less than 10 years and there is no, I mean, you know, I, I'll believe this, you know, like I said, the FBI doesn't admit a lot of things, but, or whoever, um, but yeah, there is, there is no doubt. There is no other explanation. Why do you think he came to see you and, and talk to you like that? I, I think he felt, I mean, again, I mean, um, I think 
there is there is a moment of uh, guilt, I I believe, and maybe he thought because he didn't know I was going to answer the door. By the way, I mean it could have been my mother, I, you know, it could have been anybody there. It was was during the middle of the day, but there was no guarantee it wouldn't have been my sister, my mother. Obviously, it was me, and I was home alone. So his motivation, I you know I can only speculate, but I I would say guilt, and he. And again, he spent the time really like telling me what a great guy my dad was. I know that sounds strange, but he, that's what he, what he did. And that would have been about six years before that book, The Real McCoy, came out by the FBI guys that apparently this Walker guy helped and he, out, Yeah, right? he was friends with them. Yeah. Yeah, he, he filled in a lot of holes mm. for their story. Yeah. Which is the one that your family owns the rights to? Now? Yeah, my mother owns the rights to, yeah. Because she sued, because the the original lawyer essentially used, you know, um, what do you call it when you can't? Um, no, statute of limitations, but you can't. Uh, lawyer disclosure. Oh no. Yeah, yeah, yeah non-disclosure. Yeah. A lawyer can't. Right. Yeah. So this, so your mom caught that book pretty early on in the publication, right? I think there was only a few hundred copies. Uh, I think more than a few hundred, but I've seen more. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now there, there was, was there, were, there were definitely the some copies. There was definitely some copies, but they she she got the rights pretty early on. Yeah, which is what shut down everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it stopped everything. Literally, the greatest story, you know, for for a for a movie or a conceptual movie. And it seems like so many characters on movies have been based on these uh, stories. You know, I mean, they're even they're continuing to make documentaries, and they're they even like Marvel capitalized on the db cooper story in a in a in a tv episode of loki so i mean it's it's famous you know forever it's just ingrained in people's heads it's literally the best crime caper of all times in a lot of ways and there's a there's a lot of you know as a crime there's a, you know there's big balls right you know it'd be much easier to rob a bank you know it's a you know taking money and then bailing out of a plane at ten thousand feet is the biggest it's yeah, almost, take, take, it's almost it like a special he needs a parachute I mean, just for his balls that's also there's, there's a super special skill set here i mean outside of night jumps knowing how to jump and understanding planes you know if you um study both cases they were identical about um wing, uh, wing uh, angle uh, altitude speed you know they were they, they were very planned and um and again, both of them were at night as well. So again, a special—that's definitely a special skill set. Can we get into the logbooks? We can. Um, so <laughs> I'll bring back Dan into this. So D- Dan Grider, um, he's been again hounding the family. We wouldn't talk. Blah blah blah. Uh, is very pers- he's a character and very very persistent. And the reason I bring that up, there's. He's found a lot of things and pushed for a lot of things to be found. Like so, well, he was on a he had intention. He was on a mission. He was I mean, on a mission, you know. And, and and like when you're trying to find things, if you're on a mission, you'll you could sometimes find especially those if things. you're persistent, <laughs> yeah, right? And, and uh, can we mention real quick his documentary part one lays out so much information and and you really can see the depth that he's willing to go to, right? So and a lot's come out since since that time, and that's. Blog books included, which is just further confirmation. <laughs> so, of things, so, right? so I, 
don't remember why, but we took a trip and probably to go into um, my grandmother's story. Well, when I say that, she had multiple storage buildings, by the way. And uh, she had uh, sold a a house down there like the last year of her life. And she took all that and put it into a storage building that was in the house. And that's that that house was really where she stored all my dad's belongings. And again, she, she worshiped my, she had like a, essentially a shrine to my dad. And I, I knew about a lot of these things, including the medals and stuff like that, but I never paid attention. And I think I'd seen the, um, the parachute log books before. Again, I didn't really pay attention to them. Just, they were just there. They're again, part of my family. And when I took down Dan down there, He's like, oh my God, these are the original uh, log books of his uh, parachuting um, training. And he's like, look at these dates. And, and these are, uh, we'll get into another story. And there's somebody, his, his instructor who was a friend, had, we had the, his log books, so they match up. Just, so it was very, he actually was kind enough. Specifically up to, to yeah, so he did his first, first jump. the uh, uh, November 24th jump. He literally for like four months did a seven, eight jump practice jumps in the logbook right up to the um, December, I mean, uh, November 24th jump. Does that there's a lull, he does one more practice jump before the uh, April. And we've yeah. we've literally seen. I mean, this is not something we're speculating about. No, we've these literally are, these are, these are, seen the the books written, compared. right? Compared, yeah. we have we have McCoy's uh, logbook that has all of his. I mean, these are obviously real. And then we've seen the the comparison or the the one that coincides, which is his instructor's logbook, and it has the same dates checked off. And we know that um, at the very least. Uh, Richard McCoy was jumping and training to jump right along the same time uh, leading up to what would seemingly be the D.B. Cooper case. Right. right. And yeah, again, I had seen these before. Never thought twice about them again. Just growing up kid in the house. Yeah. Yeah. Just you don't you don't. I mean, it's dad stuff. A lot of times you just don't. You don't so see it with that same. And there were, there were some other things. Uh, and well, maybe not, I mean, important to me. And I, you know, I have them now. But um, again, I must say this is a Dan thing. Like he, he's like, and we got in that same trip, and I'll, I'll get into this as I'm, I'm jumping all over the place. But after the, the FBI killed my. Uh, my dad, my grandmother was going to sue the FBI for a wrongful death. And she had, um, morbidly, I guess, uh, all these pictures of my dad's autopsy blown up. I don't know how large they are, like 24 by 16 or something. Like very large pictures of my dad on the uh, autopsy table and uh, the autopsy reports and all this stuff. And what was significant about that, again, I, I knew these existed. I had seen them. I wasn't a real fan of looking at them because you can imagine. 
Dan points out to me, he's, you know, and there's a lot when, as soon as he points out to the, this has been my whole life as far as knowing this to be truth, because and I say that my mother and my grandmother said that they w- wouldn't render him aid. And why this comes, uh, why this is a big deal. He's like, you see that? The official story was shot in the heart. And uh, this was Dan. He's like, he's shot in the shoulder. Like upper shoulder. Like it was buckshot. And it's, yeah, it was right, right below the clavicle. And it, and it has a big picture of the exit wound right right by his armpit. And I think actually probably there was stitches on the backside of his tricep. So I think. Looks like it's coming out right, right at the bottom right, of the lat. Right. All right. And the reason that we're going to, and Dan's going to really get into this because he uh, interviewed the uh, FBI agent that um, shot my dad. And this is, this is another reason why I really want this to get out there because not that I, you know, I'm not trying to take on anybody or anything like that. It's just like, there wasn't a shootout. Um, the official story says a shootout, he got shot across the room and he was shot in the heart. We've had a medical expert and that type of wound, they're like, he probably lived for 45 minutes. And now we can speculate as you can. But Dan, in his pussy way, has the man that shot him on, on video or on tape, I'm not sure it's audio or video, literally admitting there was FBI agent that wanted to render aid, and he said, fuck him, let him bleed. Gonna be a notch in his gun. Yeah, and and when Dan went to interview him, he's like, takes the gun that he took a personal weapon, not a service weapon, as a trophy to shoot my dad. And he's like, yeah, look, feel that. He has one notch in that gun. And he's like, feel that notch? This is Dan. That's That's Richard McCoy. And he literally has a personal weapon as a trophy hanging on his wall. This is the man, again, admittedly, t- and I had always known that I had heard that they wouldn't render a maid. This was a family story. That's one of the reasons why my uh, grandmother was going to um, sue him. And, and just for the record, and this was the story for my grandmother. Uh, she had, at this point, had ma- oh, by the way, had married another man who had money. And Essentially, the FBI weaponized the IRS, and the IRS, if you move forward with this wrongful death suit, your great-great-grandchildren will be poor. And essentially, that pull, you know, because the pressure from her new husband, who had a lot of money, is like, yo, you can't move forward with this wrongful death suit. They're going to take everything. So, um, and what we saw the pig, we have the pictures. I don't know if we yeah, still you, have the pictures, but I don't know if they were yours or Dan's. They're, they're we were, mine. I, uh, I, yeah, he, we were looking at them, and they're pretty clearly not in the heart. They're clearly not in the heart. Uh, you know, they might. Yes, yeah, and again, the here's the autopsy um, report clearly said not only was it was the it was so close, there was wadding, and the plastic was inside his chest. If you know anything about shotguns, you literally have to be point blank. And 
you know, uh, some neighbors saw this and told my mother and my grandmother at the time, like, Hey, like off when they went down there, there was an auction. Like, yeah, he didn't even get in the house when they shot him. They shot him on the front porch. And that was obviously not the official story. And the official story was they had a shootout and they were across the room, but the autopsy literally has the packing and the wadding in his chest. And again, yeah, all, and it went, yeah, all the shot entered and exited. Which is again, you have, to, you have to be very close, and it's very clearly, you know, there's like a six a, inch a, difference, at least angle, a six right. inch difference between the entry wound and the exit wound, which means there was an angle. Yeah, and and when we went to the house, there's there's two steps sort of leading up, not two steps leading down into the house, but two steps leading up. So if you were shot as you were coming up the front porch, right. that would be the the perfect angle. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of fuck shit that happened. Oh, you know, no, there's, there's no other, yeah, physics. I mean, there's no, no doubt. Especially with the, the fact that there wasn't a spread in the blast. No, and super tight. That it was a, a tight packing. And when it came through, it came through at that angle. Um, it makes a lot of sense when you see the perspective and <clears throat> you know it seemingly is very much an ambush yeah and again the official was he died instantly which he was shot in the shoulder and there was definitely probably if you worst case scenario maybe somebody hit his, his lung but again if you the medical expert that uh, dan got actually um said that easily he could have lived 45 minutes especially with any type of aid and again, the guy that shot him literally on tape said, fuck him, let him bleed. And uh, yeah, I'm not happy about that. But have you have you considered further legal action? Um, no, I mean, what am I going to do? Yeah, uh, I don't, you know, I'm coming out and I'm not trying to get on anybody's shit list, I guess, you know, um, well, there's a lot of ghosts here, man. Yeah, I, I, I want, you know, I, you know, that will the FBI ever admit blame? I can guarantee you not. Um, it makes more sense to make peace at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I mean, I understand what they are and who they are. Um, the most important part is recognizing a, a, a hero. Yeah, that's really this... again what I want. You know, my dad. I mean. You, you read in his own words that he wouldn't take a life in wartime and he ended up taking shrapnel for Well, I definitely read that he measured every single thing that he did yeah. and that and that his moral compass is what was guiding. All right. And that, the point is, like, the, and I'm going to go, the official story was they, they, they had him ambushed. How was that? And he had they also they he, he was opening the door and he had his hands full of groceries. There wasn't, he wasn't shooting at them. They had him dead to rise their arm. You know, there wasn't a time for him to. Unless somebody was hanging from the ceiling, it really doesn't make any sense when you look at it. And, you know. and, and, yeah. Yeah. And it's very interesting. I mean, a lot of that's going to come to light just based on just, you know, whatever I said. But Dan literally has the interview both in person and on the phone with transcripts about what the, uh, lead FBI agent who shot my dad said and it's 
plain as day. Yeah, I mean, he literally admitted it. I mean, but he admitted it. Yeah, I mean, is, this is more about figuring out who Roy McCoy is. Richard McCoy, yes. Richard McCoy, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> Who's this so, Roy McCoy guy? Come on. Man. Oh, yes. <laughs> Come on. Come on. God damn it. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Cut. Cut. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, then that, yeah, 100%. That's, and I, what I mentioned earlier, we can, obviously, there's interest in, the the DB Cooper jump, but to me, even though there's so much like to the world, that's such a big thing. To me, it's just a small part of who my dad was. You know, um, to me, the Jay Johnson was just as just as important. I mean, it was just well, as it defining. Was, it was better in a way. I mean, yeah, it was yeah, successful he, and, and yeah. you know, uh, you know, I, I will give you a little tidbit. So this is, comes from my mother. Um, my, I guess my dad, uh, we'll say naysayers, were like, well, uh, Richard McCoy did it worse. And what they're uh, basing that on, there was there was a incident, and I'm, oh God, I want to think, and this is memory, so if I get this wrong, I think it was uh, O'Hara where they, they did a layover. And uh, from what I understand, there was a, um, a lot of... Uh, weather in this in chicago and there was a lot of um i guess backed up traffic so the airport was like busy busy and there my mother was supposed to contact my dad or my dad was supposed to contact my um, mother essentially to kind of touch base before he pulls off this hijacking and um over the intercom right before he's supposed to uh they're like uh jay johnson uh pick up the telephone on whatever. So my dad rushes over there and well, he was in the bathroom putting on, put on his disguise. He was in the bathroom putting on, <laughs> his, disguise. on his disguise. And over and the intercom, up. he's like, Oh shit. Karen, my mother is, he was running behind. Hey, he's already running behind. So this is what I'm going to tell So he runs and finally gets, he gets paged or he thought he's getting paged because he used such as a, an ambiguous uh, name. And uh, lo and behold, it wasn't. Point behind that was now they're loading the plane. He hasn't got his disguise on. He still had, and he has to do this disguise in the bathroom, but also uh, he left the, um, the notes in a in a in a Manila folder, I believe, Which on a chair had a label on it. Yeah, hijacking instructions. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, the the gate ma- uh, agent ran it into the plane and handed it to him. Oh my! Yes, the best part. <laughs> While he still hadn't had on his, his make, full makeup, makeup yet. Yeah. Yeah. So and uh, and then it's actually he, kind of funny. And then he goes into the bathroom. Yeah, and finishes putting on his makeup. And comes out, and some people are like, one person went in, and another person came out. Yeah, so, you know what's very interesting? Um, side note, uh, and I don't know what happened to this. And it, So, a lot of the stuff from my dad, I know where it came from, because I think I mentioned that after they uh, shot my dad, there was an um, auction. And everything... From that auction had a yellow tag on it, a sticker, and it had just a number. So during the auction, it had whatever lot number for the auction. 
And so wait, they just auction off all of his possessions? That oh, were everything in the was in the house. Thing? Yeah. The family doesn't get any rights to that? No. Motherfuckers. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, they, they definitely, one cool, you know, my sister got one, th- two things that my dad got for her while he was on the run. And, I, and the reason that's significant is because he used bank robbery money. Um, he bought her a horse. And he bought her a teddy bear parachute pendant that was gold. And um, during the, um, I, I don't know what to call it a trial, but a judge was ruling on all this stuff. And the judge pretty much said, which was very cool of him, um, yeah, th- this poor girl isn't going to suffer. She's going to keep the horse and she's going to keep that pendant, which was very cool that judge at the time you know she was obviously looking out for a young child that just lost um and essentially this judge had empathy i guess what was very cool so anyway back to the uh auction stuff um my grandmother for whatever reason kept that sticker on everything that she bought at the auction so i don't know if you looked in that other room over there is my dad's bedroom set that was in in um in the house the, the the stickers off it but uh anyway i when that that bedroom set was in my grandma's house house in uh coast city north carolina there was a bunch of stuff in a drawer and one of the one of the things that was in that drawer with the tags on it was a bunch of makeup sets and disguise sets. So they, she actually, again, I don't believe that they were part of the uh, hijacking, but while he was on the run, he had a bunch of disguises. Uh, he was, I guess, pretty good at disguises. So he had a bunch, there was mustaches, beards, uh, makeup, wigs, and all of them just labeled with, so you know exactly where they came from because they had the uh, FBI sticker on all this stuff. But it was, you know, just an interesting little thing. So your grandma kept a lot of this. Oh, she kept everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, Dan, and Dan found some of it in yeah. your grandma's yeah, again, storage. Some of the stuff, again, because that house was sold. And there's a, there's a crazy story behind that. And this is her last, last year. She was almost 98. And um, she so, sold this house. And she was kind of excited about that because Co-City is this town in the middle of um, nowhere, North Carolina. And they didn't have much there. It's just where she was born, raised. They've had a small farming community. And she sold this house to a uh, family dollar. And she was, in her, her mind, she was doing something for Cove City because it finally was going to have something. But anyway, when she sold it, they gave her six months. And that, her being a little older, that six months came and gone. And I, this is, I heard this from a neighbor of a house that she owned down the street that she moved everything to that she stood in front of the bulldozer when they were getting ready to demolish this thing and pretty much told them that they weren't doing shit until she got my dad's stuff out of there and actually stood in front of like, that again this my my grandma was, had balls of steel and shut down the whole um destruction of that house till she got the majority of that stuff out of there yeah which happened to include uh, 
That parachute, right? No. Oh, was that was a different house? No, totally, totally different. So, um, yeah, that's anyway. I don't, I don't know. It's what more happened. about showing the character of yeah. Myrtle yeah, Grandma and literally what, stood what stood down, do. and she had taken that guy because he had helped with uh, moving some stuff with her, and he, he was like, "Yeah." She stood and told him they were not going to tear that place down until she got all her stuff out. She got her stuff out, and I guess they had to call corporate and whatever, but she, she got it. So then maybe we can transition right to her stuff as well and in and, and the other place. So the logbook, the pictures, autopsy reports, all that stuff, she moved directly from the house to a storage building at the other house I told you she owned, which was actually she bought, uh, was her sister's house. But she now she could sell the other house because she still had a house down there. Um, she also had a, well, we just called the pack house, a big storage unit. And I believe she told me she built that in the forties. And this was over actually at the family farm and probably less than a hundred yards from where my dad's buried and where my grandmother's buried as well now. So family. No, it's uh three and a half hours. It's close to the coast of North Carolina. Yeah. And, um, this is where I guess is again. I I taken Dan Dan down there. We went there to visit, and he wanted to take some pictures of my dad's part of his documentary of the uh, gravesite. And he decided to go down another time. And the story I got from him was he was down there for a family reunion of his, and he had his son with him. And he asked his son, "Do you want to come over and see the graveyard or whatever?" And he did. And um, on the family farm. There's a, a three-acre parcel right up front where this pack house was, and it was, it's, there's a trailer there, and the guy rents the land. And unbeknownst to me, and this is a, a little contention between me and Dan, but uh, he talked to that guy and just mentioned, hey, by chance, you know, you've been here 15, 20 years, and you use this pack house for some storage stuff. Have you ever seen a parachute? And uh, I guess the guy's like, yeah, I think I saw it. And of course, Dan, without my permission, and this guy doesn't get my permission, they go ransacking my my stuff. Um, that was this year. That was just that, a few months this ago. was uh, three or four June, months ago. June, July. Yeah, that's not long ago. And up in the night, I guess he missed his plane and everything because he he was pretty excited to go rummaging through the stuff. And I get a phone call from the neighbor, the guy that lives there, and he's like, hey, I'm here with Dan. I'm like, what? And he's like, well, he wants to take some stuff out of here, and I want to get your permission. And then Dan gets on the phone. He's like, Richard, you're never going to believe what I found. I'm like, what? He's like, I have the parachute. And... What were you thinking just at that moment? Um, I almost thought bullshit. <laughs> so, Fuck you, Dan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this guy, this guy, this guy. He, you know, um, yeah, I, you know, I mean, I'll be honest. You know, I think I told him I was, I was a little perturbed that they went through my stuff, you know. And with that, I would have never went through this. I mean, my grandma owned a lot of stuff, so... 
I can't be mad at, well, I can't be mad at Dan, but I can't be too mad because I would, probably would have never have found this. And I, I alluded earlier, there's, from the first hijacking, there's only two things that would solidify my dad outside of family knowledge. Well, it would solidify that my dad was D.B. Cooper. And this parachute is very, very unique. And we had talked about God, what was the cozy, cozy. It's either cozy or cozy. I don't know. Cozy. Ah. Anyway, cozy. I believe it's cozy. Huh? Anyway, cozy um, gave you know later many through interviews description of this, and it was uh, a the parachute rigger. Right, and. Um, it's a very unique parachute because it was a, a military MB8 or uh, MB6, whatever. And was the, was the round parachute. With the round parachute military yeah. that was modified to a sport. So highly modified, like essentially one of a kind parachute. And it's very appealing to a military man. Military guy. And again, the, the options were. And he had been had done both, obviously a lot of military jumps and sport jumps, but but what was really special about it, besides that, was I don't know what the rings were, but it had it was the only parachute that had the rings that if it got caught in a tree or got caught anything, you could release. You can, yeah, you can just clip them and you cut away. Um, again, and this is this will be out by the time this is released. Um. The only thing, again, one of a kind parachute fits pretty much to the T from what I've read about the description that he gave, not just the FBI, but all other, when he does interviews of, with other sleuths or whatever through throughout the year. It seemed like the most protected parachute with a lot of option for him, but he also was lacking a lot of tools when he actually made the jump, right? Yeah. I so, mean, well, the what, first what, jump. The first jump. And this is, again, going down through. When he asked for a bag of money, they gave him a bank bag. And this is where, in the second jump, he, he asked specifically for uh, a bag with D-rings and stuff. So when he did the first jump, there was no way to hold on to money. He actually took apart one of the parachutes and tried to use the paracord to wrap the bag's money to him. And, and trying to hold on to but it. But he was able to actually stuff about $10,000 into the flight suit. Yeah, there is some money that he, he did, uh, I believe, take with him. But um, he does this uh, jump, and this is where, like, and this, again, this, this will be up for some speculate, but he jumped closer to... Um, what was it, Portland? I guess. It was right, the Columbia River. And the reason I... The FBI literally used the fact that, hey, this is when the uh, stairs dropped, and that's when he must have jumped. Again, not you, that he might have sat there. Not that he might have sat there. There was no, that's just what they went, and they were over like terrain. And it was called Vector 23. There was a very specific flight pattern that he used. And coming out of the darkness, there's a Columbia River, and then Portland. And even then, Portland was lit up. And on the, um, 
eastern side, like is it eastern? I guess the other side of the bank, once you come over the mountain, there's miles of just flat. And which would have made perfect sense if if you planned it. You're right. And, and if there was a cluster of lights there, if there's a cluster of lights. It's dark. Cluster of lights, and now you have a landmark to jump at night. And um, yeah, that is that's the, that's where. It makes a lot of sense that that's where it went. Well, of course. Yeah, it's the the FBI again. That's why a lot of people have discredited my father. They, they for whatever reason they really really invested in a narrative from it being the weather was stormy and uh, you couldn't jump out of a plane. The he couldn't of, have made it. Couldn't have made it. He jumped, he couldn't have made jumped it. into terrain that he couldn't have jumped into. Yeah. He can yeah, never yeah. find anything. And man, it seems like embarrassment can sometimes lead to retaliation. I mean, he definitely pulled off, including the escapes time after time embarrassing I guess the government or the FBI what do you want to say you mentioned there was two items that would would show that yeah uh, the, he was like my dad parachute and parachute, parachute, parachute and money and my, yeah parachute yeah. And money. so yeah. uh, there was some money found God, in the early 80s side of the Columbia Tina, yeah. Bank, Tina Bank yeah yeah uh, Tina Bar Tina Bar Tina yeah. Bar yeah. and um, yeah it was found and it was there is some weirdness where they're like, well, that money came from somebody else, somewhere else. They're getting the stories all, but it was found in the Columbia river. And obviously it's speculation where he dropped the money, even to him, obviously, but he used the river and that as a landmark. And it, it makes more sense where he lost the money was in straight in the river. And that river goes straight out into the Pacific with a fairly strong, current so yeah there won't be any money found and we could talk about the the change in testimonies too oh so one another reason they they would uh say oh my your your dad isn't db cooper as one your dad said he wasn't okay <laughs> uh, we always trust a criminal when, when he says oh, yeah. and uh, two my my uh, aunt who actually was ended up being the one that kind of uh, turned him in, um, had testified that he was at home on Thanksgiving, uh, in the book and later in, in also, um, in, uh, um, uh, interviewing, she was, she was called to come back from Rick's college for the, um, Thanksgiving holiday to watch us. And they, my mother and my father were gone for four days over a holiday and over Thanksgiving, over Thanksgiving holiday, holiday. 11 1124 1974 yeah, and you know um i think they obviously were a young family and without money and they were like oh we're going to vegas and funny enough she, what could you do at vegas what could oh, you do at vegas you could uh launder money but um there was a phone call a day after from Vegas to the house, which the FBI documented. So they know. That's what's also funny. They say, oh, there was testimony, but they also documented that there was a phone call from Vegas the day after the hijacking. Um, and also funny that the next uh, hijacking he had, he did over 
uh, spring vacation. So he did both uh, hijackings. Without missing a day of class. Without missing a day of class. <laughs> which is uh, Where did he jump the second time? Um, near Salt Lake. I think near Utah Lake. Yeah, and outside of Salt Lake. That time he got all the money. Yeah, he got all With of it. twice yeah. as much money. Well, can we back up? Can we back up just one second, though, before we go there? Because you 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 alluded to your aunt being uh, a part of the so, reason yeah, that I know, <laughs> so, man. That's why you know. No, I mean, I'll, I'll talk. So you know, um, was it Van Eppern, I believe, was my dad's friend who was a state trooper. Like I said, my dad was and going into law enforcement was ironic, but. Um, he kind of got credit for turning my dad in, but the story is this. Uh, he was a married man. He was having an affair with my aunt, which never came out. It's very interesting. They glossed over that. And um, from what I was told, um, not only told, it's, it's his record, um, my aunt called up uh, Ben Epperin the night of it, and it was like, I think Richard did it. And that's, he, he said, oh, I, th- I talked that. My dad didn't tell him shit. He, instead he of, claimed, though. He claimed, he claimed, that, he claimed that. Because he couldn't say, hey, I'm having an affair with uh, Richard's sister-in-law. And she thinks he did it. So the official story was, oh, I'm Mr. Goo-Gooder and I turned my friend in. He did turn his friend in, but it wasn't because Which of... Which he even said he felt bad for. Yeah, he did say later in life he felt bad for doing it. But the real story is my aunt called him up and dropped the dime, and then he And before that, they weren't even looking for him. So he would have no. just got away with the So the funny too. story is... They would have thought Nick, Jay Johnson died in the river, too. He yeah, fucking right? hit the river. Uh, one of the funniest stories about that hijacking was, again, my dad was in the Air National Guard. And um, the next day, they got called up to do a search for Jay Johnson. So the day after he does that jump, he's in the Air National Guard actually searching for himself. Did he also fly search for? No. no, November? No, 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 that, okay. was, no that was another state. He was yeah, in Utah. Just, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but, but by that point... Um, Van Eppern had already said, hey, this and to the FBI, this might be your guy. And when they when my dad landed, uh, the FBI was actually waiting for him. And not not a big deal. They didn't arrest him or anything at this point. Uh, they was like, hey, can we get a uh, handwriting sample? So to back up to the uh, I would say a mistake there, he had did a handwritten note to the stewardess and never got it. All the other notes he had, well, they were typed, but he got them back. But in the, amongst the, I guess, confusion of the hijacking, there was one note that he had handwritten and did not get back from the stewardess. So um, they, they met him when he landed at the Air National Guard, wherever they land the helicopters, and got a handwriting sample. And as as we could move forward, uh, it does match. So I guess there was that evidence, I guess, that was not. Um, but that still wouldn't, you never would have got to there. No, we would have never have got there without uh, my aunt dropping the dime. 
like they had no idea there were there would have been zero anything that pointed to my dad he would have got away the second time Again, and they'd be looking for Jay Johnson. They were looking They'd, for Jay Johnson. They were probably getting some poor guy a fun with an uh, overdate library book. If he would have like got away with it the second time, I wonder if they would have put him together. Then they would have said it was the same guy. Right. I bet you. Well, can we also talk about what your aunt did? Uh, and I know I say, can we? <laughs> we should talk about the tie. Oh, the tie clip? Yeah. Um, which, is, which was a very interesting. So uh, there was a tie clip left behind on the uh, D.B. Cooper. It was a mother of pearl tie clip. And when, which is also interesting, when um, so this was left. this was left on the D.B. Cooper. Yes, this was left on the D.B. Cooper. When um, they interviewed my aunt, she, I, I believe it was a gift. I'm not sure. But anyway, she was like, yeah, that's 100%. And didn't know why they were saying they, like, they didn't say, hey, this is from the D.B. Cooper jump. They're like, hey, do you recognize this tie clip? And she was like, yeah, 100%. That's Richard McCoy's. And again, they have this information. And they inter- and it, I will say, they, they definitely interviewed my dad. And, of course, my dad was like, nah, when me. But he also said, nah, it wasn't me on the Jay Johnson as well. So, um yeah, that's it's, it's very yeah. There there was a couple people that identified the tie clip on the um, DB Cooper as my dad's, and they still uh, again it was it's very weird. The even though all the FBI agent like I said, even the guy that killed him on record said, "Hey, when I shot Richard McCoy, I shot DB Cooper." Cooper, and then the official story is. No matter what you say, it can't be. So it's very, it's a very again, I, I can't explain it. I don't know why. The evidence they're accepting and leaving out, it doesn't make any sense. That, yeah, it doesn't. So where, the second one was landed uh, where again? It was close to? Uh, so it's near Utah Lake. Um, God, you know, I, I was raised out there. I don't know. It's, it's the county over or so from Salt Lake. Uh, closer to home. Yeah, closer to home. Because we we're, we're, yeah, we, we lived in Provo at the time. Yeah. That's where they they claim it was over Provo, though, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Utah Lake is, I guess. Right, right. Anyway, it's a big lake. Very big, actually. Uh, but he anyway. He said, I'm going home this time. I'm getting closer. Did the media keep it a little quieter, that one? Did the media, like, because I feel like the media, the, they let the, let, the, let the original one get out of control a little bit. It was in all the headlines. and. I mean, this was too, but... This, you know, relatively, well, you know, they... They brushed it off as a copycat. Yeah, they brushed it off as a copycat, but that, but they, not at at first, they, that, that's not what they did. They actually thought that it was until they caught my dad and then the official narrative from the FBI was a copycat because right away, obviously it was, was operated, some modem, whatever, the uh, same operate, everything was... Very similar, except for improvements. That's what I was going to ask or mention that. And Dan mentions this too in his thing, but I think your dad learned about, there's a whole bunch of things he learned from the first one that sort of changed that maybe only he would know, you know, the copycat wouldn't necessarily know. This is something that really points. There are seemingly, I wouldn't say mistakes, but things that were unknown to DB Cooper in regards to operations uh, of the plane. Right, Right. And, like, then, like lowering 
the aft staircase, right? Which my dad had knew no exactly how to do, how to do, and close it and for that matter. For that, no, mat. I think no, it was it was left. It was left, left open. It was left. Okay, open. Yeah, okay you can't okay, close it okay. after you jump out of the plane. But I wasn't sure if it was broken. <laughs> well, they they made the comment that they thought he had left the plane. He, they, they felt a bump. But they that felt was just, the bump, right? Was just, but they know, don't really know what that yeah. was from, right? Okay, uh, just uh, what do you call it? Uh, turbulence. Or the stair would make a bump, but a person wouldn't. Yeah. You're not going to notice when a 190-pound guy jumps well, on that, that's like right. a That's right. Yeah, but it was just a comment that the pilot made where I believe our friend has left the, yeah. the plane. Which, again, was over that. Yeah. that That's the only uh, or whatever they think is they felt some type of turbulence. They're like, ah, maybe he just left. And they never came back out of the cockpit until they landed. But he positioned himself in the cockpit on the second, right? Whereas from D.B. Cooper, he was sitting in the back of the plane. Am, am I right about this? He was sitting in the back of the plane. We're looking at the gas tanks when the gas tanks were. Yeah, it was a position of the gas tank. Well, it was actually. The gas trucks gas is trucks what I'm trying to say. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, but, but in the McCoy case, there is a the Jay Johnson, the Jay Johnson case, but I just say that because they tie it to McCoy, right? So the Jay Johnson, DB Cooper, Jay Johnson case. He they they say that there was a perspective from the cockpit that Johnson had, whereas DB Cooper was sitting in the back of the. Yeah, this, I know there was a, there was a little bit of change, but even the direction. And the it was angle, exactly the same. Exa- no, I'm saying that's what I'm trying to tell you. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, that he did obviously had a different seat. That's what I'm. That was my yeah. but did But my my point was to say that maybe he had a better perspective. And I mean, in, that's speculation because you get seats what you get where you get seated. Okay, that's, that's okay. I thought he positioned himself uh, in again, those that's, in those that's speculation there. Okay, but gotcha. What what is interesting and there was no public record of how the um gas truck was positioned how the plane and reason that's important is my dad did it exactly the same without knowing i mean without being the same person would not no way there's no way that it would be exactly done the same, same. Well, without it being the same person the percentages they're very low, yeah. I mean, everything was exactly the same without it being public knowledge. Well, from, including, imp- but in, but also improvements on yeah, the yeah. first one. Yeah, but I'm talking for what well, the stuff that was the same was uh, angle of the, um, I don't know what it's called on the plane, but it, he put it an angle on the um, the wing, uh, the speed and the altitude for when he jumped were exactly, exactly the same. Yeah. And again, it wasn't public knowledge, but they're identical, identical. Which was at ten thousand feet. Yeah. yeah. And what were some of the other things he improved on? I mean, he brought his own. The, the main, the, here's what he improved on. Like outside, again, there's mistakes made on both. Um, the big thing he improved on was asking a for bigger denominations, more money, and a bag with D rings so that he'd actually clip it into his harness. And he actually brought his own parachute because the parachute that he did use that we have now um the cozy the um parachute rigger was like yeah this was also another reason they thought he wouldn't make it and if you look at the rig you can see it they're like hey it's highly modified and it 
would be a really hard pull. I don't don't believe that shoot was ever jumped because it was so crazy. It was like I said, it was it was like somebody being cheap. You should, instead of just buying a sport parachute, they took this um, old old military parachute and did all these crazy um, modifications to it to make it a sport. Like I said, that's why. I, side yeah everything's right side and left side instead of left side um they added um yeah you, where they added space to the packing to add a sports shoot in there and that's something that cozy testified to right it said years and years and later. years and years ago that is now in the basement right yeah. so yeah so the big improvements really was bring your own parachute and the second time instead of bringing this uh build out fake explosive he just brought a fake grenade and a pen and he just handed the pen and the reason that is so he does didn't have to carry this so instead of carrying a briefcase with a fake bond he stuffed a small gun and a, a fake grenade and then took a, a carry-on bag with a parachute so it was much easier second time because not only was it a parachute he'd used before uh it was a little bit more steerable so it made it a little little bit easier is that the grenade too down there? Is that the same one? So no, right? I, I, I found that fake grenade in grandma's possessions. I am not, I know it was my dad's cause my, my grandmother kept it on her mantle in the house and was told to me it was my dad. I'm not a hundred percent if she ever got the hand grenade, fake hand grenade back or not. I don't know if it's it. I mean, the FBI, I guess maybe, I mean, they lost their cigarette butts. So who knows if they, I uh, know in the uh, list of <laughs> in the list of uh, um, stuff they took out of the, the house when they did the warrantless search, there was a fake hand grenade in it. And when I say fake, it's a practice hand grenade. So it's essentially it's a molded piece of metal that doesn't have the sp- the spoons on it, but it's molded part of it. It's just a solid piece of metal. It's not a r- real grenade, and it's used for practice. So it has a place for a pin. You can pull the pin out and then throw it. And it's just a piece of metals for people to practice throwing grenades. Probably the same weight, probably the, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's just a yeah practice dummy grenade. But if you closely look at it, it's, it's obviously not real, but you know, I'm sure if you're holding on to it, pull a pin and, Oh, so you want to talk about another funny, sorry, going to jump over. This is actually funny to me. Um, the friend that had whose parachute this was, he graciously recently gave it back to us. And um, he told the story that after the um, trial, you know, he'd said, hey, this is mine. I would like my parachute back. And the FBI brings this parachute and it's, you know, it's been deployed. So this big mass, uh, this parachute and when he's there, he starts inspecting it. And in the inspection, he found the um, grenade pin that the FBI had had this for, I don't know, close to a year. And they didn't even inspect it to find the grenade pin. It's, it's insane. Like they had this, yeah, they had the parachute that my dad used and they didn't even go through it. And my, and, and uh, the story is, and he, he asked for me, us not to use his name so i mean if you follow this you'll figure it out but anyway um he said he was like kind of going through and he was like what is this and the fbi agent grabbed it and kind of like and bounced kind of scuffed and took the grenade pin and bounced you know 
So another kind of funny story. Fantastic. It's like the magic bullet or something, you know, it just like appears. And And it's like I said, it's after the trial, I guess at some point it doesn't matter. But yeah, yeah, just, it's just one of the many, I guess it it was like, there's a level of ineptitude, man, that it just, I mean, makes you want to bang your head. It's, it is what it is. well, of course, we're going to supplement this, Graham's going to, you because you provide us with a ton of documents that, I mean, uh, Brandon read a few of them in the beginning that Graham's going to read for us. He's going to read all that stuff and tack it on the end. But is there any more stories or anything you want to get into just about uh, Richard? You know, um, is there anything you want to get across? Yeah, I, again, I, I want everybody to know who my dad was. Um I love that we have that, um, the paper he wrote, I guess in 71, um, about how, you know, I mean, it's, it, how, how awesome did I have his words? Um, and I can get this too. I have a, a couple things. Uh, I have, this was something my grandmother kept from me. So well, I want to go back to my grandmother real quick. She kept all these things. She kept this parachute hidden for 50 years. I mean, man, God bless her. Um, man, she, um, uh, it's funny. Um, yeah, I'll get more, uh, emotional about my grandmother than I will pretty much about anything. But, um, yeah, she, she, um, really worse. I can't even explain it, but, um, in the final year of her life, I was at her house and I don't know, she asked me to get something. And I opened up a drawer and I saw an envelope and it was addressed to Richard McCoy from Richard McCoy Lewisburg Penitentiary. It was a um, letter addressed to me. And I've, I've let Brandon read this letter. Um, it's one of the most surreal things. And I remember looking at my grandmother was in the room with me when I found it. I was like, Grandma, what is this? And she just kind of looked down. She's like, I really didn't want you to see this. And I, I'm like... It's a letter addressed to me, and um, it's from my father. And I, I'll share. I mean, I'll. I don't have it. I, I'm going to paraphrase some stuff. But why it was so surreal? He says in his letter to me, "By the time you get this, something." He, he's essentially telling me he's getting ready to escape. And he essentially says that either I'm going to, something's going to happen that's going to really affect you and I might not make it. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, I love you. I love your sister. And, um, it was just very like, and for whatever reason, grandma, whatever kept that from me. And I guess it was, I don't know. It was very awkward, like uh, very weird. Cause she told me so many things including, you know, her, like her knowledge of certain things with even D.B. Cooper. But it was, it was just a very weird thing. She kept, this was in this letter in particular was in her, like I said, all the other stuff that she had was down in North Carolina. This was in her house in uh, Tappahannock, Virginia. Like she didn't have, a, especially original stuff, almost all the original stuff. I don't, I don't, like I said, she just put her head down and got, she cried and, 
Um, my grandmother was very hard. There was one way to make my grandmother cry. Talking about my father. And, um, yeah, she just put her head down. She, you know, of course, she was like, go ahead. And she apologized, but um, she, yeah, she, there were certain things, again, I guess she tried to protect me from. I know in her eyes that was trying to protect me. And I, again, I can't really speculate why, you know, this is. She had her reasons. Forty-some years later, um, I'm looking at my dad write a letter to me, uh, essentially apologizing and what's about to happen. And uh, there's uh, there's something that uh, also want to want to touch on, and it's not a poor me type thing, but when my father uh, was killed. There was a big separation in the family as far as, you know, my mother did not get along with the McCoy side. Um, some of, I mean, everybody knew my mother was directly involved with the hijackings, put a lot of blame on my mother for the hijackings, and consequently, um, his death. All right. So, um, God, I, I'm not sure exactly time frame, but right after his passing, I'm going to say months, my uncle kidnapped me and my sister. And um, I remember this, you know, there was, I'll, I'll just say this, you know, um, you would think that this is my dad's brother there had been some compassion some type of and this he was a he was a military officer he kidnapped us and brought us down to Huntsville Alabama across state lines and there's a reason I'm going to get to this um at the very end i had you know i talked to grandma and she obviously she knew about the kidnapping but i talked to her my grandmother had sued my uncle at the very end of her life for, you know, mismanagement of funds. I don't know exactly the what she sued him for, I guess, fraud or something, but uh, not sure exactly the definition of that. But she had had enough of my uncle and we had talked and I had mentioned, you know, the abuse that my father, I mean, my uncle had uh, put me through and. I can also give you this. I there's a I had my mother write <clears throat> a letter, and my well, essentially my grandmother gave me permission to go ahead to go to the FBI with this because my uncle had obviously kidnapped and I don't know how to say this. He um, he, abused he abused me. He you know he had t he had used used the end of the belt and ripped open my penis. Um. And at this time, Grandma, again, gave me permission to go to the FBI, and this is where I'm going. And, God, I want to say 2020, I get an uh, interview with the FBI to talk about what had happened to me as a child. And I don't know why I thought this was going to be a good idea. <laughs> um, I get in there. They know who my dad is and they want to talk about that and I don't obviously I'm not there for that and uh, and I I present this letter 
to that my mother wrote specifically for this interview to give a timeline because I was a child. I don't know timelines. Give a timeline to the kidnapping and 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 in this letter, it says this is my mother's own words. I went to the FBI for help to get my children back, and the FBI told me this was a family problem to deal with it. And though we were kidnapped over state lines, I was. In this man's care, I guess, if you want to call it care, extreme abuse. And the FBI tells my mother that it's a family issue and they're not going to help her. I take this letter to the FBI and I guess in some, some way letting them know I'm not happy. And then, you know what their answer to me? That's why I alluded to this earlier. Well, that was a different FBI. We're different now. And that's, and they said they'd get back to me. I had that interview. Guess what? I'd never heard from the FBI. And uh, to this day, you know, my uncle eludes any any punishment, punishment or uh, yeah. And it is what it is, I guess. But that is again, why, what I was thinking about even going to the FBI was more kind of like something that my mother, my grandmother told you know, and my mother helped with. But yeah, they. Literally told me a different FBI. Sorry. And that's what I got. And that, um, yeah, and not too, too, much, too much longer after that. This is when my grandmother passed. Close to your mom as well, right? They yeah, both passed mom, fairly close. Which, to- you know, yeah, my, my grandmother passed at the end of, or toward middle of September, and my mother passed in December, same year. 2020 yeah not neither one covid related <laughs> just uh, yeah wow this is really something so well uh i gotta say rick this has been this has been is there anything else you want to get to before we start to wrap it up i mean obviously this has been super I mean, tough for you i mean yeah, I, it's, I, it's you know no I, obviously some stuff about my dad yeah um the hard part is my grandmother i don't know why but it is it's still fresh. Um, yeah, I mean, I just want everybody to know who my my father was, um, in some ways, who my grandmother was, and you know, they were, they were to me, you know, especially my grandmother, you know, um, my unconditional love. Oh, I was, did want to get this out um, about my grandmother. After my mother got us back from my uncle, which she had to go through law enforcement, local law enforcement, and. <laughs> she picked us up from school and they went, well, they went, she went to the, uh, in front of a judge and the judge literally said, why are we here? These are her kids. Give her back her kids. We, she shows up at the, um, um, grade school we're at and with, with law enforcement and the, and the, I don't know what kind of power they're like, Captain McCoy said, we can't give back these kids. And of course they had law enforcement and finally got us back. But even the principal there was not going to give us back to our mother. I mean, insane. I mean, again, different time, but insanity. Yeah, it's crazy. But anyway, so when that happened, this was, uh, uh, I mean, we, we moved back quickly to North Carolina and then my mother moves us across country to back to utah salt lake and uh reason that's important is we were forbidden to have any contact with my father's side 
McCoy side. The McCoy side. How old are you at this time? Um, probably six. So this and your is, sister uh, is. This is a couple years after. Your sister is two or three years older than three, you. Three, three. A little over three. And um, why this is important? So I don't. I have from this time until I was seventeen. I had zero contact with my grandmother or anybody on that side. And one day when I was 17, I was 17 and I was rebellious. And I said, you know what? I'm going to call my grandmother because obviously I still remember her. Uh, and uh, I'm on the phone with her and she's like, do you want to come here and see me? And I'm like, yes, I would. And um, next day I had a plane ticket and never went back. Wow. Yeah. She she was an amazing woman, um, and in the you know I'll I'll tell this story real quick. Besides just being that unconditional love, uh, when I was in my young twenties, I um, got a young lady pregnant. I went and the lady comes to me, kind of a one night standish, and. Uh, she comes to me and wants me to pay for an abortion. And um, I go to my grandmother and I say, hey, will you help me raise this child? Or will you help me financially or whatever? And from that day forth, she said, yes. Um, I, the young lady had the baby. I took the baby home from the hospital. And all because of my grandmother. Yeah, she made that possible. Yeah. Again, type of woman she was. Well, it seems to me like that line of McCoy's is just all great because we've been here for for three or four days with you and you've treated us like family. You know, um, it seems like you're following right in their footsteps, as as near as I can tell. Wow, this has been this has probably been one of the more like one of the more emotional interviews we've ever done for sure. I mean, my heart's just like vibrating right now. Yeah, I can't I imagine what it's like for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some things are hard. Yeah. Yes. Well, I couldn't be more humbled by the opportunity to sit here and, and discuss this with you. It's, it's, yeah. Pleasure. I mean, yes, it's been great meeting you guys and hanging out. It's been, yeah. Oh, we're going to do a bunch of this. We're going to get you out to Utah and shit. Yeah. We're going to have a time. Okay. Anything else? Brandon, what about you? Anything else to say at the end? Yeah, Brandon, thanks to you too, obviously. I mean, it's about you, you know, this before. I Sorry, I made crap, buddy. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I'll love, brother. Yeah. I just know that, you know, <clears throat> these things are, these things are about family. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And the love that you can have in a family is just, it's, it's something that I, I, I feel so bad for people who don't understand it, you know? And, uh, you know, the similarities that we have in our childhoods, you know, the loss of a parent, uh, the, the understanding of the love of our children, the understanding of the love that your dad had when he chose to do what he did and doing it not for himself, man, you know, and that, that is ultimately what it comes down to with all of this. 
and 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 uh, and the lesson I think we should all take from it personally. Waffle House. Waffle House. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, guys. It's been right. amazing. Yeah, thanks. This is a letter from Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. August 7th, 1974, to his son and daughter, Richard and Shantae. Dear Richard and Shantae, rather than writing separate letters, I'd like to address this one to both of you. And since I'm not printing it, I guess mommy will have to read it. I hope you don't mind, Shantae. The reason for this letter is to explain a few things that I may not have the opportunity of doing in the future. To begin with, it will be many, many years before I'll be able to come home again. By that time, Shantae will be 20, and you, Richard, will be 17. What that means is you'll be grown, have left home or making plans to leave, by the time the government decides I can leave prison. I really don't think you should be without a daddy that long, but there isn't much I can do about it. I've told mommy to start making plans for the future that will be in your best interest, and that includes mommy's interest. At some future time, that may even mean a new daddy. That may not be what you want, but if mommy thinks it's best, then I want both of you to give her your support. It doesn't mean you have to stop loving me or that I've stopped loving you. It just means that you'll have another person to love. Love is something you can share with a lot of people. I have a rather difficult decision to make concerning my personal future. Actually, I've already made it, and it just remains to be seen how it will turn out. It's entirely possible that I could be hurt, but it's simply something that I have to do. I've taken a lot of chances in my life, and I've stood at death's door on more than one occasion. But the fear of death or being hurt should never stop a person from doing what he is supposed to do. After all, everybody's going to die someday. The trick is not to be afraid of it and accept it when it comes. I really believe that there's a better world that people go to that die. So in a way, it's something to look forward to. And if something should happen to me, just remember that life is very short and that we'll be together again in the future. And when that happens, no one will ever separate us again. By the time you get this letter... Whatever's going to happen will have taken place. I hope that everything goes all right and that nobody gets hurt, but I've never been very good at forecasting the future. So we'll just have to wait and see. I do what I have to do and everything turns out all right. It may be a very long time before I'll see any of you again. It won't be because I don't want to see you. In fact, I'll want to come home very desperately. But if I did, I'm afraid someone would get hurt could be me or it could be the men that will be waiting for me. I don't think any of us want that to happen, so please be understanding and just know that I'll always love you both, even though it's impossible to be together. A lot of things that have happened in the past and possibly in the future may be very hard for both of you to understand or accept. It is beyond my ability to even try to explain these events, but the only thing that I can ask of you and hope for is that you won't become bitter and disappointed with life. What has happened to me wasn't right, but I don't want it to affect your lives more than is necessary. I want you to live good, clean, honest lives. Study hard in school. Get involved in activities that you enjoy. 
and go to church. Your mommy is going to help you, and you in turn can help her. But it's up to you what you're going to do with your lives. In the meantime, both of you remember that your daddy loves you more than anything or anyone in this whole world, and that I'm depending on you. With all my love, Daddy. This is the Award of the Army Commendation Medal for Heroism. 26 November 1967. Headquarters, 9th Infantry Division. McCoy, Richard F. Jr., W. 315-5317, Warrant Officer, Aviation, United States Army, Air Cavalry Troop, 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. Awarded Army Commendation Medal with V-Device. Date Action, 12th August, 1967. Theater, Republic of Vietnam. Reason. For heroism in connection with military operations against a hostile force in the Republic of Vietnam. Warrant Officer McCoy distinguished himself on 12th August 1967 while participating in a search and rescue operation near the village of Apien Hoa, Vietnam. A light observation helicopter was down due to engine trouble in hostile territory. And Warrant Officer McCoy's armed helicopter was providing security for an OH-23G helicopter that was assigned to rescue the downed aviator and passenger. Suddenly, the rescue aircraft lost power and crashed near the first aircraft, causing them both to erupt in flames. Due to the extreme danger caused by the burning aircraft, plus the added danger of enemy intrusion, Warrant Officer McCoy placed his helicopter as near as possible to the downed aircraft. With complete disregard for his own safety, Warrant Officer McCoy leaped from the aircraft and worked his way through the dense jungle to his comrades. He immediately located the two survivors and led them to his waiting helicopter. Warrant Officer McCoy fearlessly and unhesitatingly exposed himself to the constant danger presented by the fire on the burning aircraft to save the aviators. Warrant Officer McCoy's courage and devotion to duty are in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service and reflect great credit upon himself, the 9th Infantry Division, and the United States Army. These awards are from March 1967 to January 1968. Two Air Medals, Oak Leaf Clusters. Citation. By direction of the President, the Air Medal, basic through 4th Oak Leaf Cluster, is presented to Warrant Officer Richard F. McCoy, Jr., W3155317, Aviation, United States Army, for the period 15th March 1967 to 26 September 1967. For distinguishing himself by meritorious achievement while participating in sustained aerial flight in support of combat ground forces of the Republic of Vietnam. He actively participated in more than 25 aerial missions over hostile territory in support of counterinsurgency operations. During all of these missions, he displayed the highest order of air discipline and acted in accordance with the best traditions of the service. By his determination to accomplish his mission in spite of the hazards inherent in repeated aerial flights over hostile territory, and by his outstanding degree of professionalism and devotion to duty, he has brought credit upon himself, his organization, 
and the military service. Citation by the direction of the president, the Air Medal, 5th through 8th Oak Leaf Clusters is presented to Warrant Officer Richard F. McCoy, Jr., W3155317, who distinguished himself by meritorious achievement while participating in sustained aerial flight in support of combat ground forces in the Republic of Vietnam during the period of 27th September 1967 to 16th January 1968. He actively participated in more than 25 aerial missions over hostile territory in support of counterinsurgency operations. During all of these flights, he displayed the highest order of air discipline and acted in accordance with the best traditions of the service. By his determination to accomplish his mission, in spite of the hazards inherent in repeated aerial flights over hostile territory, and by his outstanding degree of professionalism and devotion to duty, he has brought credit upon himself, his organization, and the United States Army. This is the award of the Distinguished Flying Cross. Department of the Army, Headquarters, 9th Infantry Division, 29th April, 1968. McCoy Richard F., W3155317. Warrant Officer, United States Army Air Cavalry Troop, 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. Awarded Distinguished Flying Cross. Date Action, 8th November, 1967. Theater, Republic of Vietnam. Reason for heroism while participating in aerial flight as evidenced by voluntary actions above and beyond the call of duty in the Republic of Vietnam. Warrant Officer McCoy distinguished himself by exceptionally valorous actions during the early morning hours of 8th November 1967. While serving as a helicopter pilot with the Air Cavalry Troop, 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment, in the air over a Vietnamese Popular Forces compound at Jadukan, seven miles northwest of Tan Lin, Vietnam. Upon hearing that the compound was in the process of being overrun by a large Viet Cong force, Warrant Officer McCoy volunteered to fly his aircraft to the scene in support of the friendly forces. In spite of poor visibility due to a thick ground fog and intermittent cloud layers and a complete lack of tactical maps for the area, Flying by instrumentation and radio alone, Warrant Officer McCoy located the compound and came under automatic weapons and small arms fire. With the position of the compound marked by a flare and the firefight marked by tracer rounds, Warrant Officer McCoy began a series of firing passes, launching rockets directly into the Viet Cong positions until all his ammunition was expended. Due to his courageous flight and highly accurate fire, the enemy was completely routed, leaving 20 bodies behind. Warrant Officer McCoy's outstanding flying ability and devotion to duty are in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service and reflect great credit upon himself, his unit, and the United States Army. Authority by direction of the President under the provisions of the Act of Congress approved 2nd July 1926. This is an officer efficiency report, October 5th, 1968, for Richard Floyd McCoy, Jr. From the 1st of February, 68, to the 8th of September, 68. 
in the category of personal qualities, top all the way down. Performance of duty factors, top all the way down. Demonstrated performance of present duty, second of highest of all the categories. And personal qualities, part four, again, exemplary in almost all of them for an overall score of second to highest, an overall rating of 94. Exceptional. The only one above that is outstanding. In the comment section, CW2 McCoy has performed his duties as aviator in an outstanding manner. In the five months that he has been in the battalion, CW2 McCoy has materially contributed to the training and maintenance effort of the aviation section. He is a workhorse of the aviation section. CW2 McCoy's performance as an aviator was highly commendable. He worked well with his associates, was extremely cautious regarding aircraft safety, and displayed above-average skills as a pilot. His performance as officer of the guard was exemplary. This is under Part 3, Manner of Performance, the comments. W.O. McCoy was initially assigned the duty of piloting an armed helicopter. Due to the nature of a hostile environment, it was imperative that W.O. McCoy learn quickly the proper flight techniques and tactical employment of the armed helicopter. W.O. McCoy exemplified himself by efficiently and effectively learning these techniques and then apply them into practice. W.O. McCoy continued to learn after his formal training by taking the initiative to spend his free time working with the aircraft and armament systems. He developed in a very short period of time a full working knowledge of the aircraft he was assigned. He also developed a skill of delivering highly accurate machine gun and rocket fire on any type of target. W.O. McCoy was not assigned any additional duties within the unit. Nevertheless, he accomplished many special tasks within the platoon in an exceptional manner. He exemplified himself in accomplishing in an exceptional manner a major task for the platoon. He was assigned the mission to plan the construction of a platoon work and storage area. He was also required to procure all the raw materials and supervise the construction. W.O. McCoy accomplished this major task within two weeks' time. The work area has provided the enlisted man an ideal area for normal duties and the storage area has facilitated an efficient means to account for and store all T-O-N-E equipment securely. To accomplish this task, W.O. McCoy has demonstrated a high degree of ingenuity and leadership. W.O. McCoy was also the leader of a religious organization in the regiment. W.O. McCoy's performance has been of exceptionally high quality during this period. He is an extremely capable pilot and has mastered the techniques of employment of armed helicopters. He is highly proficient with the three different weapon systems employed by this unit and is expert in troubleshooting the systems when difficulties arise. W.O. McCoy's performance during combat missions has earned him the respect of his fellow aviators and enlisted crew members. He remains calm and deliberate when in contact with enemy forces and presses the attack until they are destroyed. W.O. McCoy has also been the leader of a religious group on the installation. He has spent much of his free time with this group and his efforts have been effective in improving the morale of the men in the unit. 
W.O. McCoy has performed all his tasks in an energetic, conscientious, and professional manner. His dependability, ingenuity, and thoroughness have made him a valuable asset to this organization and the United States Army. Continued. As the leader of this group, he supervised all their activities and meetings. He was highly instrumental in procuring an increased membership, and the organization flourished under his leadership. W.O. McCoy is a hard-working individual. He assumes all tasks with a conscientious and professional attitude. His overall demonstrated performance is equal to his estimated potential, and he has been an important and dependable member of this unit. John F. Egan, CPT INF platoon leader. This is the school paper from March 1st, 1971, titled Decision in Battle. I was crouched in a shallow, hand-dug ditch behind a large palm tree which afforded limited protection from the angry snapping and whining bullets which filled the air. Although excited, I was not frightened, but my mouth felt dry and I could feel my heart pounding against my ribs. This was the moment at which all my training was directed. The enemy was only yards away, beyond the clearing, and our own men were behind them pushing them out of a narrow strip of trees and thick green jungle vegetation which lined the bank of the Mekong River. The enemy consisted of a small squad of men which we outnumbered three to one. They had a choice of either making a death stand or making a run for cover across the field where I was posted. Suddenly, a short, small-built Vietnamese man clad in black pajamas ran out of the dense foliage into the open field in clear view. This was the enemy, and it was now my job to stop him. Would I be able to carry out the job for which I had been trained? In our culture, war is thought as a necessary part of survival, and depending upon the particular time frame that one is born, there is a prevailing attitude for or against war. Most of us, who were young children after World War II, were nurtured on the ideas of war heroes, fighting for one's country and killing the enemy. In most war movies or books, the John Wayne or Audie Murphy type hero was shown killing the enemy in the face of insurmountable odds, and the enemy is usually depicted as a stereotyped robot in uniform. Seldom was the thought brought out that this enemy soldier might also be human, with human emotions, family ties, and future aspirations like those of the hero. What about my enemy in black pajamas? This enemy was now within 20 yards, running diagonally toward me, but oblivious to my presence. From the way he was leaning forward and clutching his side with his right hand, it appeared that he may have already been wounded. Though he appeared unarmed, I raised my M16 rifle to my left shoulder and ordered him to halt. Dung Lai. Ignoring my command, he continued running as fast as possible, and I fired a short burst of automatic rifle fire, not to kill him, only to warn. He continued to run across the field, toward the six-foot-high elephant grass, and I then had to decide whether to kill him immediately or overcome him physically before he reached cover. Common sense told me to shoot, but my sense of fair play would not allow me to shoot what appeared as an unarmed man. 
I charged out of my protected position, determined to overcome him before he escaped into the grass. Within a few seconds, rifle in hand, I narrowed the space between him and me to tackling distance. As the volume of automatic rifle fire intensified, I began to seriously question my motives and intentions for coming out into the open. At the same time, it dawned upon me that the crack and snap of the bullets was getting uncomfortably close. Suddenly, my enemy paused, buckled at the knees and crumpled to the ground. A split second later, still in full stride, I heard an ear-shattering explosion and immediately felt the burning sensation as huge hunks of metal ripped into my right arm and left leg. It was now my turn to crumble onto the ground. Later, in the hospital, I learned that a fellow soldier had observed my supposedly unarmed enemy holding a grenade close to his body. By his decision to shoot him, he undoubtedly saved my life. The enemy soldier smothered the blast with his body. Until this time, I had always felt that I could perform the job of killing the enemy in a true John Wayne fashion. I did not realize that killing, even in war, oftentimes meant difficult moral decisions. I now realize that the conventional war ideas of killing the enemy could not easily replace my personal standards, even under military orders. In my mind, this was not just the enemy, but a man. A man, perhaps, with a wife and family waiting for him back home, while he performed the job called war. Many men justify unnecessary killing in difficult situations with the excuse that they are not responsible for their actions. They are only victims of circumstances. In truth, though, war does not change man. Only man can change man. Richard F. McCoy, English 212, March 5, 1971. This is a letter from May 26, 1972, Army Aviation Re-Aircraft Rescue, Nebo, Utah Army National Guard. Dear Mrs. McCoy, The following information was obtained from the Federal Aviation Agency Safety Office concerning the aircraft accident on Mount Nebo. 1. Date, 8th January 1972. 2. Pilot, Dennis Edwin Woods. Three passengers, Lee Charles, I am Gordon E. Holt. The co-pilot who was flying with Richard was Harry F. Reed. The crew chief was Leyland Swanson. If you have any further requirements for information, this facility will give any assistance possible. Sincerely, Tom Brewer, Major F-A-U-T-A-R-N-G, Support Facility Commander. This is a list of training, assigned units, medals, decorations, badges, commendations, citations, campaign ribbons, and a couple paragraphs of description. Training, basic training, code of conduct, military justice, NJP, emergency medical care, parachute school, parachutist badge, basic airborne, green beret, advanced demolition, Guerrilla warfare, helicopter and advanced helicopter, warrant officer school, warrant officer equals designated an officer by a warrant, 
Ethical leaders and specialists, notably Army helicopter pilots, take same oath as commissioned officers. Assigned units, Green Beret, 5th Special Forces, 1964 Army Special Forces A-Team in 1964 in Vietnam with Norm Bendixson. The team had 12 members, a camp and small village in Tanpu and later in another village called Don Puk. Job was to train the local Vietnam militia troops and also do community support activities. Example, medic would have sick call every day and see dozens to sometimes hundreds of local folks with various ailments and injuries. Your father was one of the demolitions experts on our team. He worked at booby trapping and rigging various explosive devices around the perimeter of our camp to slow down any attempt by the Viet Cong to overrun us in the middle of the night. We fortunately had no attempts by them during our stay there. 1967, United States Army Air Cavalry Troop, 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment, APO, flew C-13, question mark, 1968 to 1970, HHB, 4th BN, 41st Artillery, USAREUR, 4th Headquarters Battalion, 41st Battalion Artillery, United States Army, Europe, Germany, W-2 Warrant Officer, and the 115th Engineering Group's Headquarters Company, 115th Engineer Regiment, Combat. Medals, decorations, badges, commendations, citations, campaign ribbons. Parachutist badge, Combat Infantryman's badge, Armed Forces Expeditionary Medal, Purple Heart, August 27, 1964. Shrapnel wounds, arm and leg in combat operations, Camp and Long, Vietnam. For killed or wounded while serving in the name of the President. Army Commendation Medal for Heroism with V-Device. Distinguished themselves by heroism, meritorious achievement or meritorious service. Air Medal, one to four oak leaf clusters. Air Medal 5 to 8 Oak Leaf Clusters, Distinguished Flying Cross, awarded April 29, 1968, Heroism for Extraordinary Achievement While Participating in an Aerial Flight, National Defense Service Medal, Vietnam Service Medal, Vietnam Campaign Medal, Three Overseas Bars, Honorable Discharge, Letter to Ritter, R.E. Military, Strove to be in the best units and volunteered for the toughest and most challenging training. After completing parachute school and volunteering for the Green Beret, then came two more years in advanced demolitions and guerrilla warfare. In 1964, I was sent to Vietnam as an advisor to the South Vietnamese forces where, during company operations, I was shot and wounded. I've witnessed the death of many good friends. That experience was so distressing that I left active duty a few months after returning home. And trying to get my head together, I decided to return to college. That was spring of 65. There, I met my wife, Karen, and married her in the following summer. My personal life was not working, so I returned to the only life that offered a challenge. I re-enlisted and volunteered for helicopter training. After a year of intense training, I returned to Vietnam in 67. 
I've never shirked my duty in the face of danger and actually sought out difficult assignments. After Vietnam, I served two years in Germany, but in the spring of 1970, I deferred to the wishes of my wife and ended my military career. RFM Teach me all your secrets to get a good handle on a better way to live. How does one get out of bed every day in the throes of the apocalypse? Should I bury my head in the sand or sabotage their evil plan? I feel really trapped, an ant burned by a magnifying glass. It's all a little bit too convenient, all the evidence went up in flames. Phonies, fraudster, scammers belong in the slammer, my friend best give up their names. Should I call on militia man? Or pass out a petition pen. I feel really trapped. An ant burned by a magnifying glass. I don't know what y'all been told, but I got a soul made out of gold. Sound off. One, two. Sound off. Three, four. Cadence count. One, two. A big ball. Some time ago, a crazy dream came to me. I dreamt I was walking into World War III As prophetic as humanity As aching bones As frantic animals Sophia wrote it down Built an ark, now she floats it down The river dark As prophetic as deja vu As wormwood As falling stars above Sophia wrote it down, built an ark, now she floats it down, a river dark. I can't even hear my own thoughts for the life of me over the din of a bruised and broken culture. The media spins and splatters and spins and clatters and I cringe because it's psychological warfare. Don't you feel yourself getting really mad? How did we let it get this bad? Don't you feel really trapped like a brain in a vet? to close Pandora's box but sirens are singing me off a cliff I'm looking to hitchhike to Shangri-La over yonder Sophia would you give me a lift hopped out of the Hegelian rebellion say goodbye to all you Machiavellians let evil destroy itself I'm bound for Shangri-La Shangri-La My dream if I could be in yours As prophetic as morning doves As groundhogs As fallen stars above Sophia wrote it down Built an ark Now we're floating it down A river dark As prophetic as white wolves As butterflies As rainbows Sophia sings now we built a plane, now we're taking flight above a river bright. 
Shangri-La, la 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 Shangri-La.